Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. Uh, just let me finish my statement. That it's not that about motivated slavery people. Let me finish things. Moynihan. Let me finish <laughs> Moynihan. I'm going to cut it anyways. I'm going to cut it so you can't talk over me while I'm finishing this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, boy. That are you going to cut the part where I call you a complete asshole? So yes, I'm going to cut that too. Asshole. God damn it. Yeah, sometimes you interrupt people to make a point. That's what I, that's you how it can. works. You can. Know? I just want to finish the point before I forget. Get it because yeah. I don't Finish want to sound like an point. idiot saying this awful thing no, that's out why loud it takes without four hours, to, four days to get these things online because you cut them so you don't sound like an idiot. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. This is Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink, and I'm, I'm delighted to still be able to do those various things. I'm quite good at them, whatever they are, and they'll remain <laughs> mysterious. Um, I am joined by some exemplary humans. I mean, they are just truly remarkable people. They've been mm. my my fellow travelers and my my fine friends through thick and thin. I'm overselling it. It probably sounds like I don't mean it, but I do. <laughs> Referring to Matt Welch, editor at Large of Reason Magazine. He's on mute, so he's saying things he doesn't know, yeah. but you can't hear him. Sorry about Michael that. Michael Moynihan. I, was, yeah. <laughs> I got a five-year-old real close by, so That's it, okay. could, it could go off at any time. Oh, God. It's fine. We know Coco Beware could, could barge Cocoa in at bomb. any moment. A Coco bomb. <laughs> She's trying to fix the drawing on my wall that she uh, inadvertently ripped or did it on purpose mm. in anger. But it's a drawing uh, that looks like a green kaleidoscope. And on top, very ecstatically, it says, poop. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's kind of what I, well, like how I read your columns too. Like yeah. that's what it kind of comes across to me. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Matt, Matt Welch's daughter, youngest member of Mensa and speak yeah. of the devil. Yeah. There she is. Hello, Coco. Um, Michael Moynihan is also here in addition to Coco, yeah. who's yes. at Vice. Uh, maybe Coco also works at Vice. And we have a guest today. Very exciting yes. guest. I guess I'm delighted to have on the podcast, uh, Mr. David French, who is the senior editor at The Dispatch and a columnist at Time. Uh, Mr. French has written a lot of great stuff of late, and we are going to talk about those things and the courts. David, thank you for joining us. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, y'all. I mean, it's uh, it's good to have a rhino uh, with us. Like <laughs> Out of the gate, I want you to know that there's a rhino on this podcast. Yeah. I don't um, think I'm even a rhino anymore. Like, I don't identify as a Republican. So yeah, you're in. There's no in name I know. only. Yeah, you're hmm. just in name only. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so I, I, I put a bit on the house today and I got it. So, and now I just want you to know what? that. Yeah, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I'm fleeing. It's escape from New York time. And this is actually true. This is how horrible the city can be sometimes. Um, and by the way, if any listener has the money for my down payment, I, you know, my email address because <laughs> I'm a little short at the moment. This is real. So I, don't know I want, I want everyone listening to know this is a real plea for help. This is a real plea. Yeah. yeah. If you want, I'll give you a decent rate. I'll, I don't know what's good. I'm going to drop in the, in the arms of an angel music (laughs) right now. This is, this is literally like a check cashing rate. I mean, I'll give you 20% uh, APR. I don't know. But so I did that and I'm like, I, you know, I felt good about it. And then I, (laughs) a friend of mine who's in Bed-Stuy texted me and said, Oh, I I just heard four gunshots and people running. And I'm like, I don't know if I trust 
her to know what a gunshot sounds like. Mm. Um, and then she, she lives texted in bed I know, I know. <laughs> and then she texted me and said, oh, the cops just zip by. And then everyone came out. And by the way, it's interesting. Everyone came up with their camera phones. Like immediately? Just, yeah. Right. Like the whole, literally everybody's like Sven Nikvist now. You have to get the content for the citizen, for the citizen app. Yes. The content for citizen app and for yeah. various other things. And then she said she was down, it was on Malcolm X and she was on Malcolm X and that there was a guy face down in the street mm. blinking, had been shot in the back. So this, this is, is, this is our oh daytime. This is, this is your friend who lives near in my best, old place in Bedside. Exactly like a block yeah. from your old place. Yeah. 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 I figured so, as much. Um, so that I don't think I hear much about it. Yeah. That is a so, terrible story. Fun it's fact. It's a terrible story, but it was like, I should leave New York. Number one, that was another, that was another sign from, from the heavens that maybe I should, maybe it's time to leave. Well, not the heavens, After all maybe. all this time. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not that, but you know, it's, it, it, it was really terrifying. And also something that, by the way, when I looked on Twitter, cause you can usually find references of no reference to it at all. Nothing. Yeah. Didn't see anyone well, talking about it. So I, I said anyway. fun fact, and it's not so fun perhaps, but some people may be intrigued to know that the citizen app was actually called vigilante originally. Is that right? True story. Yeah. Oh, they had to change that. that. Could you imagine why? Because <laughs> it, it was founded by Curtis Sliwa. <laughs> so I'm sorry for being like a kind of a bummer first anecdote, but well, I mean, you, you also, it's one of those things. I think buying a house is a bit like, but buying a house is a bit like um, getting married. You're not supposed to talk about it. Just like you're not supposed to see the bride in her wedding dress. Until it's done, you haven't consummated. I mean, I am divorced, so that's, that's kind of <laughs> maybe of a point. But at the same time, Camille, I've talked to you about this, and I've I've asked you for advice on this stuff. I'm I'm kind of a rookie in this. I have bought a place before, but I didn't do really any of the heavy lifting there. But yeah. um, I'm asking you. The problem is that as longtime listeners of this podcast know, and they've often asked me about it, asked you about it, and the Patreon they've asked. So, oh, by the way, sign up for the Patreon because I don't have a down payment. Um, so, um, <laughs> so they've asked about your like staccanovite struggle to build the house in, uh, oh my in, God. in the neighborhood you live in. And so the problem is when I call you and ask for advice, you have sage advice, but you also are like, don't do it. <laughs> that, well, that's the advice. <laughs> Never you just don't buy like, a house. Yeah, <laughs> you don't so. like the advice I'm giving you. Yeah, um, well, but I don't anyway. know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. I want it well, to be I, great for you. I hope it's great for I, you. I hope, it, I hope it works out. But, but um, they said yes to the yeah. offer. Yeah. So that was good. That was good. Anyway, we can talk about the real stuff now. Um, well, because that's, I'm that's already getting stuff. messages for my down payment. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, I don't have rich. I don't have anyone in my family is rich or has any money. And like when you do the mortgage thing, and you fill it out. It says, is any part in all the things it says, is any part of your down payment a gift? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm like an Irish kid from Boston. We don't have gifts like that. We don't like, we don't, I don't have a parent that can give me money for these sorts of things. Anyway, check, your, so, check your privilege, Moynihan. I, check your I privilege. have no privilege in that. In that, in that so, I'm sorry, what part of the Hamptons are you? It's, I am not. That is that is a lie. That is a slander, and I ah, resent it, Matt Welch. Okay. And by the way, North you Fork, cannot that's what you cannot come. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I would not go to the North Fork. That's day class A. I don't do that. <laughs> anyway, crack is whack. Crack anyway. is cheap. We don't do crack. Whitney Houston. Well, maybe we, we should get into some of the, the things that are happening the in things. the world. You know, David, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about was your recent piece about racism, um, which I actually thought was really great and had a lot of insights. Also had some things it disagreed with and sure. would love to chop that up with you. But before we get there, 
it has been an eventful day in the courts, particularly for conservatives. I caught essentially the first half of the day. So I am aware of the expansion of civil rights protection to certain groups. But there were some other decisions as well. And I wonder if you gentlemen could get me up to speed and give me a sense of what the consequence of these decisions are. Yeah, it, everything unfolded in two phases. So at 930, the Supreme Court issued an orders list that took a while for it to sink in what it actually did. Um, but it did three really significant things. First, it completely uh, obliterated the hopes of Second Amendment activists to have any sort of meaningful Second Amendment jurisprudence for the foreseeable future. It took all of the pending Second Amendment cases and just denied cert in all of them. So those that included things like what you'd call some of the harder Second Amendment cases, like the assault weapons ban type appeals. But it also included denying cert on a case uh, on the new, an appeal from uh, against the New Jersey law, which says that you have to be able to show a need before you're going to be allowed to bear a handgun outside of the house. So you you don't have a right in New Jersey to to bear a handgun. Now I use the word bear because that's uh you know you have a right to keep and bear arms in the second amendment. So all of the second amendment jurisprudence all of the second amendment cases just were tossed. And so what that means is, you know, the federal protection for Second Amendment rights right now is very thin, like super, super thin, and it doesn't look to change anytime soon. Then the court also ditched, denied cert on all of the cert petitions challenging qualified immunity, which is one of these legal reforms that people have been talking about in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing and many other incidents of police brutality. And the Supreme Court just tossed them. And that was surprising because they had held over those cases for consideration week after week after week after week and into months. So there was a big assumption that they were going to take one of these qualified immunity cases. And then the third thing they did, and this is the orders list at 930, was they uh, denied cert on the Trump administration's appeal from the Ninth Circuit's preliminary injunction ruling upholding California's sanctuary laws for uh, that that prevent California resources from being used to enforce large chunks of federal immigration law. And so from from my standpoint, I thought that was the Supreme Court went one for three. Like, I think it's right from a federalism standpoint to let the California sanctuary law stand. But from a civil liberties standpoint and from a Second Amendment standpoint, those cert denials really stung. So that was that was nine thirty. So you're already reeling, you know, from very consequential stuff at 930. And then at 10, uh, Justice Gorsuch, the opinion is released. Justice Gorsuch, writing it for a 6-3 majority, extends Title VII to cover, which is the, you know, Civil Rights Act of 1964, to cover uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. And then Twitter promptly did what Twitter does, which is melt. (laughs) So to to take these in no particular order, the qualified immunity decision that the court made today, do you suspect that part of the reason for that is all of the pending uh, legislative action that's being considered right now related to qualified immunity? If I had to guess, I'd say that was the reason. Although it shouldn't matter technically because, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the challenge to 
the qualified immunity rulings, qualified immunity is a judicial made doctrine. It, it was really solidified in a case in 1982. Um, and it was a complete distortion of civil rights acts in 1871, which gave you an ability to recover damages if your civil rights have been violated. But then the courts over years and years began to rewrite that statute and to basically mean that you can hardly ever recover. Um, and, and it was really solidified in this 1982 Supreme Court case, Harlow v. Fitzgerald. And so there was no reason for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can undo its own precedent. But I do think when you have the Republicans saying qualified immunity is a no-go, Biden and the Democrats saying qualified immunity reform is part of their police reform package, that the court mm-hmm. may have just said, hey, we're going we're gonna to pull out of this. Uh, but the uh, the gun cases is really interesting because the I mean the Supreme Court in two thousand eight and two thousand ten in the Heller and McDonald cases they recognized really for the first time that the Second Amendment is an individual right right um, yeah it's a very contested thing and so a lot of people started rubbing their hands and saying okay well this this has got to mean something and I, I forget whether it was Scalia probably Scalia uh, but uh, writing at the time that says this this should not be mean to understand that uh, localities can't come up with their own gun control measures um, just means that you can't deprive it as an individual right. And all the – and David will correct me. uh, All of these cases had just been like swelling up like in a massive amount of cases, right? Like uh, guns are kind of like abortion. It's always tested on the legal level or on the local level to become a legal case and and see how far high up it gets. But it was also a question of like, all right, well, what does this mean now that it's an individual right? What can't you do? What can you do as a locality? And this is just a gigantic punt, right? Like they, Oh yeah. There has been uh, a desire to have any kind of sense of, of, uh, of a roadmap from the Supreme court. So what is your analysis, David, of, of the why of that? Whoa, boy, that's a really good question. I, so there is a some people would say, well, there's a why that says, well, wait a minute. Often when you're dealing with new areas of law, it has to mature at the second at the circuit court level. You have to have a, a body of law that creates circuit splits and the Supreme Court steps in when there are circuit splits. Well, there's been enough Second Amendment litigation since Heller and McDonald that this body of law isn't just maturing, like it's shaving and its voice changed. I mean, it's it is, <laughs> you know, this body of law is well into puberty. And there's a lot of stuff that the Supreme Court just kind of has to step in and decide. We don't know, for example, what is the proper level of scrutiny that is to be applied to a Second Amendment uh, case. Is it strict scrutiny? Is it intermediate scrutiny? Is it something else entirely? Um, we have zero development on the on the body of law dealing with the bare arms part of keep and bare arms. Yeah, we have a Heller decision that has some general language about the kinds of weapons that are protected under the Second Amendment. But really, all we're left with right now is a, on a concrete, factual basis is that we do know that the Second Amendment protects your right to keep a handgun in your house for self-defense. That is all we know for sure in the Second Amendment jurisprudence. It's an individual right that allows you to keep a handgun in your house for se- uh, for self-defense. And we don't even know like all of the limits that can be placed on that. So as a practical matter, if you are seeking to exercise gun rights, your source of your gun rights right now are primarily found in state constitutions and state statutes and hmm. not in the Second Amendment itself, at least as interpreted by the Supreme Court presently. And so, and and when I talk, when we talk about a lot of law having developed, that means 
lots of circuit court cases upholding assault weapons bans, circuit court cases upholding New Jersey's uh, law, you know, that that doesn't give you a right to bear outside of the home. I mean, there's a lot of pretty restrictive uh, state law that has been upheld on Second Amendment grounds by circuit courts, and the Supreme Court has just not touched it. Justice Thomas has pitched a judicial fit over this, and my best guess as to why is that there is no group of four justices, because remember, it just takes four to take a case, who feels confident about the outcome, Hmm. that they don't feel confident enough about that the jurisprudence that they seek will become the law of the land, uh, you know, will become Supreme Court precedent to take one of these cases. And so they're kind of like, um, you know, what's the... uh, uh, what, I forget the name of the office um, episode, maybe threat level midnight or something where they all <laughs> where they all ended up pointing their their finger pistols at each other like <laughs> in this st- uneasy standoff. I, I just think that there isn't a, a, a faction of the court that feels strong enough in its numerical strength to take one of these cases and start to settle these questions. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I wonder, the one thing I wonder about is the massive number of people who have become perhaps new gun owners uh, just before the pandemic, uh, many of whom yeah. uh, I personally know a number of people who are Democrats who have long been skeptical of guns and who purchased a handgun for their own protection. But I wonder if that might have any impact on how things progress later on. I wonder if there might actually be some sort of sea change with respect to public opinion on matters of gun rights and perhaps a a bit of a coming together amongst Democrats and Republicans or at least conservatives and progressives around these issues. Probably not, but it's at least worth (laughs) speculating about out loud. It's a huge culture war issue, but it's one that the right has won in a rout for the, about the last almost 40 years. Like if you look at 1986, if you just rewind to 1986, and this sort of goes to an argument that I've made a lot, that anyone who says that the culture war has moved that moved the culture relentlessly left, no, I don't think so. If you look mm-hmm. at the state of law in the U.S. in 1986 about which states allowed you to carry a gun outside the home, uh, where they may issue, um, shall issue, on, on a carry permit or constitutional carry, it was a small minority of, of states that even would allow you to carry a gun, gave you a right to carry a gun outside the home. And now there's about, what, 14, 15, maybe six, 14 states, 15 states that are constitutional carry, that the Second Amendment is your is your gun permit. Um, and there's a, a, a real, um, I think the, the number of May issue cases, States is four or five. I mean, I don't have the chart right in front of me, hmm. but it's one of those areas that the gun rights position has won in a route. Um, I like the way my uh, colleague, my former colleague at National Review put it. He says, in the last 30 or 40 years, America has become more pro-gun, more pro-gay, and more pro-life. Don't forget weed, David. Oh, yeah, more pro-weed, for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're burying the lead here, I'm afraid, though. Right, which is that everyone's talking about the um, 6-3 Gorsuch-written expansion mm-hmm. of civil rights. We have David French here. David, are you just like engaging in your own drag queen story hour to celebrate <laughs> this? This, is, this mean, is because of you. Sorab was right. That was yeah. right. 
look, the you know classical liberal Neil Gorsuch came through for drag queens. I mean, I guess that <laughs> you know what else could you expect? No, I you know look this this was a case that if you if you watched, I mean, if you read the oral argument, listened to the oral argument, you thought, yeah, this is happening. This is this is going to be. I thought it was going to be five four because Roberts was kind of hostile to the uh, plaintiff's position in the case in oral argument. So I was surprised it was 6-3, but there's some speculation that he switched over to the majority so that he could assign the opinion. So he assigns it to Gorsuch rather than, say, you know, Ginsburg, and it's going to be written very differently by Gorsuch than Ginsburg. But, you know, look, this was a battle of the textualist slash originalist. It was, you know, in one corner, you know, weighing at, you know, 6'3", 210 pounds, whatever Neil Gorsuch is, is Neil Gorsuch. And then is that... Samuel Alito's music, I hear, you know, it was a, <laughs> it was a Alito versus Gorsuch cage match over how do you interpret the word sex and whether or not uh, the way in which the drafters of the statute not only would have interpreted the word sex, but would have applied it hmm. in this circumstance. And Gorsuch and Alito began from the same place. They said, look, sex means sex. It doesn't mean gender. It means it's a biological thing, okay? And so – and then Gorsuch says, well, even if the drafters wouldn't have intended its application here, sex still means sex. And to make it a sort of a simple analogy, what's happening here, sexual orientation is an aspect – is inseparable from sex discrimination in this sense. If you have – a man who shows up at a company picnic with a, a male date and a woman who shows up at a company picnic with a male date. The problem, if, if the uh, company is going to take action against the man who shows up with another man and not take action against the woman who shows up with another man, then obviously there is a sex distinction being drawn here. And yes, there's a sexual orientation distinction, but there's also a sex distinction. And so because there is a sex distinction, Title VII's prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sex comes into play. And and Alito says, wait a minute, that's not the way this statute was intended to be read. And this would shock the drafters of Title VII in 1964. And it it would. I don't think there's any real argument that it would. Um, Mm -hmm. But Gorsuch responds and says, essentially, too bad, so sad – this is what the words say. And then Alito comes back and he says, well, wait a minute. If you had a policy on the books that said no gay employees, well, that wouldn't necessarily be sex related because you don't know the sex of the people you're dealing with. If you say no gay employees, you only know the sexual orientation, which is a pretty good response. But to which then Gorsuch would say, but wait a minute, in any given circumstance, If you're going to – rather than the abstract policy, its application to any given person is still going to go back to the sex distinction. So that's how you had this real battle of textualism. And one other thing, and I'll stop monologuing. This really shows how much legal tactics matter. And you have to give credit to the plaintiff's attorneys in this case because what they did is they decided, I think tactically, there's one person who matters here, and that's Justice Gorsuch. I am arguing for Justice Gorsuch. And if you look at that oral argument, to me it looks like they treated it like there's one justice that they're talking to out of the nine. Now, you might think, well, the typical swing justice is going to be Roberts now, right? 
But I think they made a calculated gamble that the real swing justice here is Gorsuch because of this textualist argument, and they aimed everything at him. I mean, they were singing his tune, and it prevailed. So is this a good or a bad thing? Your perspective. Um, Okay, so... I think I think the totality of what this means we will know much more in one year, okay? Because in theory, this could have some real problems and implications for religious liberty. So mm-hmm. if you have if you're a religious college, for example, and you're subject to Title VII, does that mean now that you're going to be restricted in your hiring and firing decisions? Um on the basis of Title VII, on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, which would then require you to violate elements of, you know, especially if it's theologically conservative, violate elements of your religious conscience. However, mm-hmm. at the same time, the court is deciding a few other cases. So this term, we will get a decision on something called the ministerial exception, the boundaries of the ministerial exception, and that is how much can a religious institution define who gets this ministerial exception from non-discrimination laws based not on title or training. In other words, you don't have to have a theology degree and be called a priest, but on function, like what you actually do for the religious organization. So if that case comes out the way I think it's going to come out, you're going to have religious organizations being able to take a huge bunch of their employees and saying, these people are ministers and you can't touch and, uh, and non-discrimination law doesn't touch them. So that's okay. That's one case. Then there's another case involving the application of non-discrimination law to a Catholic uh, adoption and foster agency. It's Fulton versus city of Philadelphia. And that's next term. And that case is going to decide whether or not they're going to invigorate the free exercise clause so that when there is a clash between a, a non-discrimination law and free exercise that Hmm. will weight more towards free exercise. Okay. So here's my theory, and you can, you can tell me in a year if I'm completely an idiot. My, my theory is that, and I would call this informed speculation, is that what we're heading towards is a situation in which non-discrimination laws are going to be very vigorous in secular commercial enterprises, and they're going to be much less applicable in, uh, to religious institutions. So you're going to have a sacred-secular divide here, which ironically and interestingly enough basically is the Utah compromise Hmm. on these issues that was struck several years ago in the Utah legislature that said in exchange for granting greater job protections to LGBTQ Americans, we're also going to write in greater religious liberty protections into statutes for religious institutions to abide by their conscience. And that has been a kind of a background compromise proposal that has been floated legislatively that has made no one really happy (laughs) for years you know on the Mm -hmm. on the conservative side they say wait a minute don't secular organizations have the same kind of expressive and associational rights as religious organizations and then on the progressive side they say why would we exempt from non-discrimination statutes all these large religious institutions that employ thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so, but I think we're headed towards something like that. Hmm. Yeah. One interesting thing to observe is that um, um, compared to four or five years ago, 
I think uh, libertarians are much more enthusiastic this morning about this than I would have accept, uh, expected. Uh, because mm-hmm. five, four years ago, the Utah Compromise is what Gary Johnson was basically uh, supporting in his mealy-mouthed, affable uh, Gary Johnson <laughs> way. Um, but uh, And that outraged a lot of libertarians. Like, are, you are telling the government to get in the way of, you know, baking a Nazi cake in Utah? What the hell's wrong with you? Um uh, but uh, the, it's one of those kind of classic uh, Supreme Court things where uh, – and this is also true of abortion, although I don't mean to pick that scab necessarily. But like um, it's uh, – from a philosophical point of view, it's an absolute mess. From right. a pragmatic where Americans basically are, it kind of is kind close to where the American compromise basically would land, um, it seems to be. I, I think I, you're right, and it's the culmination mm-hmm. of – you have two very you have two parallel trends. One is the bulk up of First Amendment jurisprudence that's been going on for thirty years. There's this big bulk up of First Amendment jurisprudence, and then also the growth of non discrimination laws has been happening exactly parallel. And so both of these things are sort of coming to a head at one time. Yeah, the one thing I'd say uh, taking the 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 conventional and perhaps not conventional given Matt's description, but at least the somewhat predictable um, libertarian perspective on this. Like I, I, I feel multiple ways about this. You know, obviously I think it's a, a good thing when we are generally shifting culturally towards a position of not being interested in discriminating against other people on the basis of their beliefs or convictions or genitalia or their preferences for genitalia um, or their imagined genitalia, I don't care. Um, And I don't think other people should care, generally speaking. So I do wonder how momentous this is from the standpoint that I don't know just how much discrimination is actually happening on this basis in places where people might actually want to work. My suspicion is that if, you know, there's a, a, a Christian school of some sort where one of their core beliefs is that homosexuality is wrong, then, you know, as a homosexual, you might not be particularly excited about working there um, <laughs> unless you're, unless you're the organist. Um, and that's a, a bit of a colored people, <laughs> colored people church joke, which you might get. Um, but uh, I, I also have this other feeling, which is the same feeling I've had about the civil rights act for some time, Um, And I certainly am aware of people who say, well, you know, at a time it was absolutely necessary, but the encroachment on people's liberty to be assholes, to run their bake shop as they see fit and to not bake cakes for gay people and to not employ gay people to bake their cakes. It's a prerogative that I think people ought to be entitled to. Um, And the sort of thought policing that comes into play when court rulings like this come into play and legislation supports it. And I worry about the various places where it's simply difficult to determine what's going on here. Um, One of the things we'll talk about a little later, I'm sure, is all the various pieces of criminal justice reform that are being advocated for. One of the things that Cuomo signed into law um, over the course of the last couple of days was a new piece of legislation in New York, which is going to criminalize making unnecessary calls to 911 on the basis of someone's race. How do you make a determination about something like yeah. that? And and I I worry about a, a bunch of, you know, spurious prosecutions of people for what is in effect a thought crime regardless of my perspective on 
you know, how egregiously awful it is for someone to discriminate against someone on the basis of their sexuality. I would much prefer a world where I'm helping to put that bake shop out of business by not shopping there anymore or giving them my, my money. Same thing for the, the whites only golf course. But I suppose it's easy for me to say that in 2020 and I'll acknowledge as much. Well, I didn't think you'd be able to give the whites only golf course money, Camille. That's the point. <laughs> they, they might want to take my money, but they would probably let me be in a member anyways. I've, I've got a lot of currency in a lot of places. You'd be surprprised. <laughs> oh, and, and white nationalist golf courses. Oh, hey, you'd be shocked. You'd be shocked. There's an interesting uh, historical footnote here, and that is a lot of people argue, and there's a lot of evidence, that the sex discrimination portion of prohibition in the Civil Rights Act was a poison pill. Hmm. That it was an uh, intentional expansion of the reach of the bill to try to kill it. Huh. Um, and so that its very enactment was sort of like a defiance of a legislative troll who was trying to kill the bill because the, you know, the, one of the interesting questions I've always thought about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is when you look at the array of things that protects people from discrimination against race, principally race, religion, and sex – they're not all the same historically in this country. They're not all the same. And I have this sort of uh, – I have a very much of a libertarian streak in my domestic uh, policy, um, in my domestic policy philosophy. But all my libertarian friends run screaming away from me the instant we start talking about foreign policy. But the um, – you know, I've, I've kind of long thought that I think that the non-discrimination regime – should have started with race only. And then we would have been, and then been very careful about including additional categories of people um, to put them in the exact same position as people have been discriminated against on the basis of race, because we have a extremely different history in that regard. And we had a problem in 1964 that was mm -hmm. substantially different. In in many ways, you were still still dealing with, and to use a phrase, the badges and incidents of slavery, mm -hmm. even as late as 1964, which was de jure by law legal discrimination, um, legal discrimination against people on the base of race, defended by violence. Right, and that that was a unique problem. And then what we did is we created a statute that dealt with that problem, and then other problems that were not as severe. And then we've been kind of off to the races ever since on like adding different categories and, you know, uh, different uh, uh, groups. Like, you know, one of the things that's universal in non-discrimination statutes, and I say this as a veteran myself, is veteran status. Hmm. Well, veterans are the most among the most respected Americans, you know, the most respected class of Americans in the entire country. Do we need extra protection from discrimination? But right there in statute after statute after statute, right by race, is veteran status. And again, I think one of these things is not like the other. And that's where you start to get into a lot of these civil liberties issues the libertarians have traditionally worried about when it comes to non-discrimination laws. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, I, I want to move on to some of to some of the other um, the other things. I should probably say in my own defense quickly because I'm sure there are people bristling at my last comment. I, I certainly think it's appropriate to prevent the state from instituting discriminatory laws. 
And, and that is a very good thing. Um, I, I do wonder about extending that same sort of prohibition to private citizens and private actors in their private businesses or homes or what have you. Um, but I just wanted to offer that refinement uh, to my previous statement. Um, but it, I suspect we'll probably touch on some of these issues but I thought it might be a good idea for us to talk broadly about the the current moment, which even while we're seeing some COVID case counts increase in different parts of the country um, and that is becoming a concern again, it is still the case that the dominant story across the country and in some senses around the world um, is the, the death of George Floyd um, and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter as a prominent political movement in uh, the United States of America. And I think it's even fair to call it the dominant political mu- movement in the United States of America at the moment. Uh, I've, I've, as I said before, I've not ever seen anything like this. I'm not sure there's any precedent for it in terms of the speed uh, with which it has sort of overtaken the attention of most of the country and certainly captured the attention, if not the imagination, of most of the people in the major media who are helping to program television networks um, and fill uh, the, the, the contents of newspaper columns. It's a pretty remarkable change. And David, I know you've been thinking and writing a lot of this about this topic uh, over the course of the last couple of years, actually. And I think a lot of it has run parallel to my own thinking um, but you've you've had a bit of an evolution on these issues, uh, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I don't want to characterize it for you, um, although I did spend a decent part of today rereading some of your essays, um, one of which was from a couple of years ago about how you changed your mind, um, and another which is a lot more recent um, called American Racism, uh, We've Got So Very Far to Go. Um, but I, I did want to talk about those two things. And I also wanted to just talk about them in the context of the news that we're seeing right now. Um, at sure. the moment, we're still seeing statues being taken down across the country. Uh, there is a push to uh, update or change the names of various military bases, not to mention streets. Uh, I've seen people crowing about the need to stop calling my master bedroom a master bedroom. I, I'm not certain who they're trying to protect there, but that's a thing. <laughs> Wait, that, that's <laughs> not real, is it? So it's on Twitter. Does that make it real? No, that means it's not real. How many yeah. retweets until something becomes real on Twitter is a real question. Seven. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit like Tinkerbell. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm also seeing a lot of other interesting cultural shifts, some of which we've talked about on the podcast, but one that I, I found that has been in the back of my mind and I'm eager to talk about is this push to force people to capitalize the letter B in the word mm. black in various publications, um, there are some difference of perspective on whether or not we ought to also capitalize the letter W in the word white. Hmm. So perhaps to begin, David, maybe you can give us your sense of where things stand. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> are, are you are you optimistic? Are you happy? Are you excited? Are we moving in the right direction? Are we are we progressing towards a civil war? That's a easy, easy question. I, I am cautiously optimistic with great trepidation. Mm. Um, so here's the cautious optimism. I think that there has been 
and it's not just the George Floyd uh, video, which was crushing on its own terms, but I think it, it cannot be viewed in isolation uh, without coming right after the Ahmad Arbery um, shooting, which was also one of the most awful things that, you know, I've seen on video and right. And that was right in the midst of all this was the Breonna Taylor killing in, in Louisville in one of these no knock raids. And I think the, this, the succession one, two, three just was shocking in a way that some of the other events have not been, but the way other, but it would, would not have been created the kind of movement we've seen without some of the other events, like the Walter Scott shooting in South Carolina, where a police officer was caught on tape shooting a 50 year old man in the back while he's slowly running away and then appearing to plan to taser by him or the Flando Castile shooting. And you can go through many other names. And I think it just hit in a particular moment where Black Lives Matter went from a reference to a specific organization that has a pretty radical political ideology um, to a declaration instead of capital BLM to a small BLM, a declaration of principle, not a reference to the particular organization. And I think that that was a big change. And I think all of a sudden, for the first time, I think that a lot of the battles over police brutality have been, you know, what you would call battles of the charts. So you've got, you know, you'll you'll have Vox and Vox will have the charts about, you know, disproportionate use of force here and disproportionate use of force there. And then you'll have a chart in National Review or a Wall Street Journal that says, no, 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 wait, when you control for crime rates and it just gets all so hazy. But then when you see what happened to these individuals and then you combine that with the power of personal testimony of person after person after person saying, you know, look, here's this scary experience I had so that when I see what happened to George Floyd, I think there but for the grace of God go I. And there's this sort of power of personal testimony that that creates a snowball effect. And I think that when you talk about the general the, the general mass of where people are, it is we got to do something about police brutality and we want to say something about how much we love our fellow citizens of all races and ethnicities. I think that part is very positive. The part that I think is I'm very worried about is we know how hyper-partisan we are now. And so then we're going to get what we're in danger of is this sort of like on the one end you have saying people saying, oh, well, it's all well and good to be against police brutality, but you also have to um, capitalize B. You also have to read this book about anti-white uh, fragility. You also have to believe all of these things, this sort of laundry list that people go, what? And you've seen some of this intolerance where someone shares a tweet that it's actually more effective to do peaceful protest than than violent protest, and they're fired right. for that. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so on the one on the one side you have these people saying, "Okay, wait, we're going to capitalize on this moment and that what that means is you have to be pulled all the way into our highly contentious radicalism." And then on the other side, you have sort of like the the Candace Owen, "Why why are these why are these people making George Floyd a hero? Don't they know he had a criminal record? Don't they know?" And then and then look at what these radicals are doing. Look at what these radicals are doing. And so all of the negative polarization starts to come into play. So that the most committed partisans come into a movement that is right now encompassing a large majority of people who are not normally – or a large number of people are not normally politically engaged and pulling them to the edges. And that's what makes me worry. 
uh, if you look at the actual political, if you look at the actual political process, with the exception of like the Minneapolis city council and defunded the police, it's, it's decidedly non-radical. It's like, what do we do about chokeholds? What do we do about qualified immunity? What do we do about no-knock raids? All of these things are non-radical suggestions to deal with real problems. But if you go on Twitter, where the people who are most interested in this debate are, all of that's like lost now. How much are you seeing much about no-knock raids or how much are you seeing about qualified immunity, you know, except for Justin Amash, God bless him, tweeting about it every five minutes. Um, you're seeing a lot of the much more polarizing debates about white fragility and this and this and this. And that's what makes me nervous in the midst of my cautious optimism. It's an interesting thing now when you're looking at Twitter because um, it is a horrible place to visit in oh. any way. I mean, I would, you know, rather, um, you know, vacation in on the moon than have to read Twitter for another minute. But I feel like <laughs> I have to because it's like we yeah. do the show and I see what's going on and everything. But I often try not to mistake it for, for reality, of course. But what is strange to me is that mainstream journalists on Twitter – there, everyone seems so afraid of taking on the furthest flank, the furthest kind of yes. radical flank. And no one will do that because they, they're like, you know what? When somebody says something totally bananas, they're like, you know, I'm either going to be quiet or there'll be like, you know, Zach Beauchamp or these guys who are, are on the left who said maybe burning things down isn't the greatest. Did anyone defend him? That's, that's the question that people don't often ask. They ask, you know, looking at the people in the mob and who was, who was leading that, that hideous mob, but also pointing out that nobody was actually coming to this person's defense. If you look at Barry Weiss, um, who's, you know, a friend of the podcast and actually tweeted something about us and said, you know, during these times, you should re be reading these people. And you have, I mean, the most banal tweet of all time, Barry Wise can, everything she says that gets her in trouble is like, hey, you know, I love immigrants. <laughs> I love immigrant skaters and they get the job done. You're misquoting Hamilton while being, you know, um, less dramatics. I mean, it's so crazy. Oh, it's amazing. But, but, but you see this stuff happening that nobody wants to speak out and, and say anything, but you have, you know, her own, um, co-workers denouncing her, which I think is pretty, pretty gross. But, you know, to your point about, about, um, this moment and, and your optimism, I'm increasingly becoming like, you know, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than I have been because this morning I, um, was doing what I usually do now in COVID times, which is nothing. And I was uh, walking around <laughs> trying to figure out which, I've got some things for you to, to do. Give me Moynihan. some money. I got a lot of things to do. Um, and the, it kind of, I was thinking about how similar, this moment is, but it's a much smaller scale. But it, it, this moment is to, to, to 1968 in France, particularly in France, because you have this moment in which it's so crazy. It got to a point of such craziness that de Gaulle fled to Germany. There was, I mean, the de Gaulle government was teetering on the edge in May of 1968. But there was also that moment in which the students who had the complaints that one could have in 1968, and there were plenty of them, but it was totally bogged down in this insane Maoist jargon right. that the students were coming out with. And then the funniest stories of the 68 uprising, and that's um, justifiably called an uprising, were the moments when the students were trying to get together with factory workers. And those factory worker unions and the guys are like, I, I, what is he talking about? This man is out of his mind. And I see that now when I see people marching down the street um, and I, I see them going by and I'm like, these are decent people. There's lovely people here that have the right ideas. They don't like police brutality. I'm on the side. 
And then they are coming up against, they're the factory workers in a way that are coming up against these people who are saying, we need to not, some I, NPR today, WNYC today, a woman who said, I'm not, I'm not even, when I talk about defund the piece, I'm talking about dismantling it entirely. Yeah. So the NPR and the, the, the host was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. They, the host didn't say, you should not be on the radio because, you know, Radio Managua is broadcasting down the street. This is the wrong <laughs> station. This is the state run. Madness, madness, madness. And when, it, when, when they butt up against that stuff, you know, the people on Twitter aren't going to say anything. But people in the real world are like, are you out of your mind? Like my cousin, my uncle's a cop. This is like crazy. There are bad cops. Let's get rid of bad cops. But when you say you want to, you know, turn everything into a yoga studio and put, you know, people in cars <laughs> that can mediate disputes by petting them on the head and, you know, <laughs> reading fucking bell hooks poems to them. I don't know what they're planning, but they have no idea what they are planning themselves, right? They're just going around saying these things. And I see that, that the, the air coming out of it, because rather than say something, because it's too dangerous to say anything anymore. But you never know what landmine you're going to step on. You watch Barry Weiss's tweets and you say, everything that I say is probably going to be offensive to somebody. Is that you just kind of pull back and you see the marches, you know, gain, like losing steam. They're losing yeah. steam a bit. The movement is still out there. It's still on CNN all the time. People are still serious. But that, I think, and I don't know if this is true. I'm just speculating. But from people I've talked to who were really, really on board with this stuff at the beginning are now like, you know, do you really have to throw the chair through the window like of that, like, you know, Bosnian immigrants jewelry store? Like, what are you doing? And mm -hmm. that more and more is happening. And I think that's taking a lot of life out of, out of this, this movement. You know, and marches are going to peter out anyway. I mean, like, yes. it's very hard to sustain, you know, yeah. 500,000 person marches week after week. After well, week. COVID times, well, none of us I, are doing I, very I, much. I was just going to say, yeah, during, during COVID times with more lockdowns almost certainly in our future, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. You can do this for a while. And given the level of excitement here, like the fact that some people do in fact believe, and, and I know you've written critically about this, um, David, but some people do, in fact, believe that there is an existential crisis here, that there is a, an active attempt at genociding black men in America. I, I see you know, NBA players talking about how they're afraid to resume the season during this political moment because they know that lives are at stake. I, I hear Cory Booker talking about how it's, it is the case in America today that police are regularly gunning down black and usually unarmed men, a, a factually inaccurate statement that largely goes uncriticized because right. at the moment it is not just unpopular to criticize statements like that, obviously ridiculous hyper it's hyperbole suicidal. like that. It is, it is dangerous to you. Yeah. Um, I can say that sort of thing for the moment because the, the worst thing that will happen to me is i bizarrely be called an uncle tom by a white person on twitter which is still <laughs> kind of shocks me still kind of shocks me um but and, and know, david the reveal here is that white person is me <laughs> <laughs> not usually yeah. only on thursday it was by the way but, it was like the pictures that I, I i sent to you um that were from the ap wire of the protests when they were coming over the bridge here um in, in into williamsburg in my neighborhood and there were the two two photos and i saw right back to each other back to back on the wire and i sent them to these guys of um two black cops you know, one in a white shirt, which I think means there's a captain or something. They're going to give me a, the, the cops that listen are going to give me a hard time about this, but restraining on the ground 
a like willowy, uh, you know, girl who went to Bennington and two black, like working class cops doing that. And then there was another picture of another two black cops, like taking uh, these people off the streets. They're all white. And so it is kind of funny that, 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 uh, that, that is that like white people calling you uncle. It seems to be a lot of the dynamic here. The racial dynamic is like, is, is opposite. Shit's you know, scrambled. I mean, majority minority police force. In New York my City, wife so. uh, went to the Nashville protest with my two youngest kids. I have three kids, mm-hmm. my two youngest, a couple Saturdays ago, like right when it was really kicking off. And they saw a lot of stuff. And every, now I'm not saying that every act of violence in Nashville was from a white person, but every single one they saw <laughs> was from a white person. <laughs> Every single one. And there were African-Americans who were going to them. And she caught one of this on a video that went viral, had several million views on Twitter where. Oh, yeah, I saw this. Yeah, this guy, this guy, (laughs) older, older black guy is talking to these two young white, uh, two young white kids and goes, he said, y'all ain't grown. Y'all ain't grown. And and that was fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I do think there is this there is this really interesting element of white radicalization over race that the polling data indicates is way outstripping some of the opinions even in the black community Un- undoubtedly yeah Und- and 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 joe biden here runs a race he runs a democratic primary race as if twitter was never invented and wins in a landslide in in the democratic primary it's like everyone else was sort of running to please twitter and Biden is acting like, you know, he's it, it, it's still the age of the phonograph. And <laughs> he what, he had his finger on the pulse much more uh, than those who are monitoring the Twitterverse. And that's one thing that gives me a little bit more hope. But the Twitterverse is still that's where everybody who cares the most about the issue spends all their time. And I'll tell you one thing that really bothered me was how much navel gazing occurred about the New York Times. Mm. Right after, so we spent, how many days were spent dominated in journalist Twitter about the New York Times' own op-ed page decision when the former Secretary of Defense of the United States, who was Trump's hand-picked Secretary of Defense and was sort of the cornerstone of the argument as why it was so great that Trump won because he got mad as the Secretary of Defense. His Secretary of Defense says after federal officials had attacked overwhelmingly peaceful protesters to clear space for a photo op, condemned him and said he's trying to divide america i've never seen anything like that in my adult life but oh wait we've got new york times op-ed page drama and that swept aside and i was thinking wait a minute okay, literally, literally same times day op- it's the same day this stuff happens yeah. yeah yeah it's not the new york times op-ed page is unimportant but one thing was a lot more important than the other thing, and we just went down the the rabbit trail. The lesser important thing, in my view, you guys might. Disagree. I think. I, I think one of the reasons why people uh, talked about it a lot, and we we were definitely guilty of talking about it ourselves on the podcast, and very guilty, um, <laughs> super guilty, because oh, about it too. because um, uh, for a lot of people, and I think broadly speaking, us. Um, but other people like Andrew Sullivan and Matt Taibbi and, uh, and, and others, they sort of see this as a moment, uh, uh, like a, a watershed moment when uh, the left abandons liberalism. 
the institutions mm-hmm. of the left just say, screw it. I'm sorry. We're fighting mm-hmm. Donald Trump here. We can't play by these rules anymore. And we're, uh, one of the reasons why I'm very interested to talk to you, David, is that you've been fighting those fights on the right. You've been fighting yeah. against illiberalism on the right. You, for reasons that are still wonderfully obscure, but now exist on the Reason Interior Slack channel. Whenever some crazy things happens, we, uh, you know, Robbie Suave will say, and still David French does nothing. <laughs> yes. And he tweets, he tweets that all the time. All the time. It's fantastic. Uh, but so, oh my God. I'm very interested in your perspective because on one hand, you and I, and this overlaps with my feeling too, like, the police reforms, a lot of them are going in the right direction. The demonstrations, which have 74 uh, percent support of American people, uh, those are good demonstrations. The looting is bad. Everyone kind of knows these things. And and the perception of systemic problems in, in policing is has moved a lot in six years yeah. in ways that are are. Uh, getting people to talk about things like qualified immunity and chokeholds and, and no knock raids, which are great, you know, issues the reason's been talking about forever. Um, however, yeah. they come at the same time and seem to be saddled with this illiberalism. And, and, yeah. uh, and that's kind of, uh, uh, terrifying is too strong of a word, but it's, it's certainly alarming. And, and it feels to me, and I'm slow to realize these things as they happen, but the great, uh, French Amare wars of last year, um, is also being mirrored by the great New York Times wars of this year. And they're saying they're, they're attacking the same targets, which is the enlightenment. They're attacking liberalism by name and saying your mm. monument to liberalism sucks because yeah. it's inadequate in power politics and the search for one true morality right now. How much do you see that as a mirror to one another? Oh, you know, um, I'm not, I, I think it's Jane Coaston who uses this term from Vox a lot, horseshoe theory, uh-huh. that mm. as the two sides get more extreme, they gravitate closer to each other. And I wrote about this in my newsletter. Every malady of, illiber- of illiberalism you see on the right, you're seeing on the left and, and vice versa. You're seeing cancellations. You're seeing boycotts. You're seeing rejection of liberalism itself, of, the va- of free speech as an independent value. Like free speech is only, is only worthwhile to the extent that good things are being said. Well, if that's the only way it's worthwhile, then it's not free speech. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this. And and one of the big problems and one of the difficulties defenders of liberalism have is there's so many negative uh, there's so many negative assaults on liber- there's so many assaults on liberalism right now that it's sort of hard to train your fire on the most important one in the moment <laughs> and and in the moment like my I put the hierarchy like this and I'd love to see if you guys disagree with this. An assault on liberalism from the state, I view as the gravest threat. Mm. An assault on liberalism from a private institution, even an important private institution, is important, but it's not as big of an assault, not as big of a problem as an assault from the state. And so when I see some of the things that are happening in the Trump administration, like I think that physical attack on those protesters— um, to create a photo op that was sort of like this, almost like, you know, from a tin pot dictatorship. To me, that was an, ass- that was an assault on liberalism and in many ways, a-, a literal assault on liberalism. When I look at the, you know, I have long been an advocate for, um, 
social media companies to voluntarily approach, take a more viewpoint neutral approach to their moderation, (laughs) content moderation policies. We can have that argument. It's an intense argument. But the instant the state tries to come in and say, and we're going to settle this with a government commission supervising political speech online, sort of the Hawley Section 230 reform, I'm like, well, that's a, you know, it's, you know, that's like when the people, those of us who are sort of arguing together, uh, we, we, over what Facebook's policy should be, then lock arms and look to the federal government and say, hands off, let us argue over Facebook. It's not Mm -hmm. your deal. Mm -hmm. And so I think that on the right, I've been very alarmed to the extent to which state power, after a lot of early fears in the Trump administration that did not come to pass, um, are now starting to emerge. Um, yeah. Trump has announced he wants Holly to be involved in social in Section 230 reform, and so from that standpoint, I've kind of like seen that as um, let me uh, uh, adopt an Iranian. Uh, you know how the Iranians say that U.S. is the great Satan and Israel is the little Satan. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I look at like government assaults and liberalism as the great Satan, and private institutional assaults on liberalism as the little Satan. And a lot of, and you still call them both out, but one's more important than the other. If that, if that makes sense. I I think it, I think that makes sense. Um, I will say that I occasionally ask myself, you know, Camille, you're grown up now at a minimum, you've got a lot of gray hairs in your beard until you die. (laughs) I just noticed that tonight. You look like Cornell West. Yeah. Yeah, The the die, the die is starting to fade. I'm going to fix it. Start calling me brother, Michael. Brother Michael, we got to talk about the deficit of love. Um, I I think one thing that I've begun to wonder to myself about is whether or not, and Jonathan Hyde, if he's listening, uh, will actually be happy to hear this, uh, perhaps. Uh, I've begun to wonder about my conclusions about the potential dangers posed by social media platforms and about the power accrued to private entities like a Facebook and a Twitter, which of course the entire world doesn't have a membership there, but obviously the Twitter in particular has a tremendous amount of influence when it comes to the the journalistic class and yeah. shaping narratives. And I, at a minimum, am at least concerned about what's happening there. And in many instances, I find myself being, if not, at least now during the Trump era, perhaps more concerned um, about that. But I'm not even certain that it would change that much if someone else was in office, if only because what happens there in the culture and in that ecosystem may in fact presage what could happen when a new administration takes power. And to the extent one party is either too incompetent or sort of too oblivious, um, or at least the the separations of powers are working sufficiently well that they simply cannot execute their vision for instituting the kind of censorship regime that they would like to backed up by guns, then the private censorship regime that comes into play and the general social milieu that is created when everyone uh, uh, signs up for, you know, the latest craze when it comes to, you know, a particular political cause 
that creates a circumstance where simply articulating the phrase all lives matter becomes a fireable offense. Like, right. This makes me nervous. And uh, I'm, it, it makes me nervous even saying that out loud because I feel like I'm betraying some of my, my libertarian priors and some folks may come after me for that. No, but, but Camille, but I think it's also important to point out here to, to kind of bolster your point in a way is that usually the check on that is media. I mean, we talk about the media a lot. And I think that, that you know, and, and I think I take David's point that, you know, the New York Times conversation is less important than some of these other ones that we often miss. And the sure. navel gazing is very real. Um, cause usually, cause it's like, it's about our friends. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we right. want to defend our friends, you know, it's really annoying, but, but the, the media class as I, I wouldn't say as a whole, but so many big luminaries in it, so many big institutions have abdicated their responsibility that one would presume in the past that they would all line up together and say, hang on, mm-hmm. we don't kind of, kind of a skoky way. You know, mm-hmm. we don't like this stuff, but let's 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 be a little circumspect about what we're doing here and kicking people off these platforms and second now is seems to be the opposite and i think no the first yeah, time right. i i noticed that and i know matt and i talked about this like contemporaneous with the events was the charlie hebdo stuff when mm. the number of people in and watching somebody from the old school like salman rushdie who is um very very much a left-winger and whom I have a lot of disagreements with politically, but I remember talking to him at the time during this, and he said, I'm losing more friends now than I have in a very long time, you know, since the Satanic Versus stuff where he lost some friends, but it wasn't many. It was the John Le Carres. It was the real radicals, the real kind of like, you know, Cold War lefties, but, but it wasn't a lot. I mean, most of the people kind of st- stepped up and then that happened. Nobody did, or very few people did. And then I saw the second thing was that, that they went further and actually attacked dead cartoonists. Which, if right, you think right, that's right, an overstatement, right. go back yeah, and look. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh wow, the 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 this, this has been a sea change of opinion here. And then I see now of that, you know, who at the New York Times is defending somebody like Barry? It's not a free speech issue when it comes to you know Twitter allowing to say this or even her own employer for the time being. She 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 has a job, but just that instinct to just you, back away and say, you know what, it I get it. I personally get it because it's not worth it when you're trying to put food on your family's table. Um, but it is not a good moment that as you, as you saying, and I think you're right, Camille, that like, it makes me increasingly uneasy, but it, it, it's an extra added layer of uneasiness when there's mm-hmm. no one there to defend the most basic, obvious principles of free speech. And, and to be I mean? clear, I'm not begging for legislation. I don't want... Yes, right. you are. <laughs> I don't want the federal government you to get said, involved you, in you this. You emailed me draft legislation <laughs> that you wrote <laughs> model. today. It's embargoed. I'm just it's saying I'm concerned. It's the Holly, New York Times. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Alec. I, you know, I, so I, I, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, and look, I also think that we need more reasonable people to be brave. Yeah. I think yes. we we need fewer people reading their Twitter replies. Um, just let them go. Put your thought out there and don't even look God, at your people replies. People are really horrible, aren't they? Oh my yeah. god! Don't don't ever read mine. It's Chernobyl. Um, <laughs> I I I only reply. I only read my replies when I tweet about like pop culture or sports stuff. But since some of the trolls have re- learned that I do that, 
So they'll sneak in and wail on me about like drag queens when I'm talking about LeBron James. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we absolutely should fight hard that the private institutions that have buttressed our liberal democracy should remain liberal. We absolutely should fight hard for that. And, and, and I think that there is a, uh, an element in which we should vigorously fight. We have to, we cannot do it unless we fight for the rights of others that we would like to exercise ourselves, including the rights of people who disagree with us mm. and fight for a place for disagreement with my own position. Cause it's, you're always going to find people who are going to rally to Tom Cotton's defense on the right. How many people on the left are going to, while criticizing his op-ed, rally to the defense of his right to say it. Now, it's actually right. more than right-wing Twitter would pretend. You know, they're the Jonathan Heights of the world. They're the Andrew Sullivans, although he's more of a man of the right, but he's certainly heterodox. There are people on the left who were worried about the New York Times. And interestingly, the New York Times goes ahead and prints Brett Stevens and Ross Douthat taking the times to task for what they did. So it's not like it's, you know, mm -hmm. completely shut off from debate. Although um, Brett is not I, long I, for this world, I suspect. Well, you know, one wonders, but, you know, and, and well, also one wonders if somebody like that goes away, who they replace them with, because I mean, I, I think that the weird thing about this, and this actually takes it away from the navel gazing thing is, and I think we've talked about it quite a bit in the show is the recasting of, of words as violence, because yeah. nobody wants, nobody is going to go out there because they know it still doesn't play well to go out there and say, I don't want these words out in the universe because I don't like them because you sound right. like a little totalitarian, but if you say they're violent, well, nobody likes violence. We want to prevent violence. So when you saw the people at the time saying, in, 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 uh, I mean, in absurdity to end all absurdities, and one would assume that that's what, what um, you know, shows like, you know, John Stewart's or whatever, you know, satire is for of these yeah. people that work at the New York Times saying, I'm probably going to be murdered because Tom <laughs> right. Cotton wrote a dumb editor. Like literally we were talking about their response, but we were not talking about the initial complaint, which was so batshit that I couldn't even believe that no one responded to it. But but you can't and no, people don't want to these days, but it was an extension of that idea that words now are violent acts. So we have to actually tamp down on these things because we don't want violence. We don't want people to get hurt. And that was hurting people could potentially hurt them. So therefore it shouldn't have been published. That, that was so bizarre to me and especially bizarre that no one responded to it. Well, David, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the, the piece specifically that you wrote American racism. Sure. We've got so far to go. And as I said earlier, I found a lot about it that I, I greatly appreciated. Um, I, one, I just think you have a, a real um, delicateness with these topics. And it's very obvious that you are writing for a conservative audience, trying to persuade them to take these issues more seriously and have been doing so for a very long time, um, advocating for criminal justice reform and accountability and policing, something that is near and dear to our hearts here on the fifth column, right. every sane person. Um, and <laughs> I think, I think that's, that's important, vital work. Um, one, one place, however, where I think we may part company and I, I, even today on the podcast, you've talked a bit about Black Lives Matter and the degree to which they have, uh, to, to the extent they have an agenda because it's this leaderless movement, it's quite difficult to pin them down who is, who's setting the agenda. Um, it can be 
it can extend to some pretty radical things. Um, and I think that's, that's a fair statement. It also includes some really good things. And a lot of the people associated with like DeRay, who I'm, I'm careful not to overpraise, but like some of the projects he's been associated with have just been really good. Um, and have, have mm-hmm. accomplished a lot of great things at the, the state and local level in terms of reform. But the thing that most concerns me, uh, and it might simply be the fact that my own sort of raison d'etre is related to race and identity and the degree to which uh, race kind of poisons everything, um, right. is the degree to which Black Lives Matter is committed to, and anti-racism broadly is committed to reifying race. Um, and making it something that is imminently more corporal and constantly considered in every single circumstance. Um, the, it's it stock and trade is a, a kind of uh, essentialism in terms of conversations about privilege that's innate and even victimhood that is also sort of seemingly as innate. And while I, you know, I read the piece and I cringed when you described some of the abuse you have been uh, subjected to and the concern that you developed for your daughter um, as you would encounter circumstances where she might be encountering something that, that looks like discrimination in different contexts. And you can expand on this. Um, I think about the other extreme of that same dynamic, the many people I know who really do seem sort of prisoner to their paranoia about racism they imagine they're encountering all the time and the degree to which this is something that they know to be true and there is absolutely no way to disprove it because when they walk right. into the gap, whether they're followed or someone just says hello to them or someone ignores them, all of those interactions could be interpreted as, wow, that's so racist and it's hard right. for me to believe that in in much the same way, much of our conversations around police shootings are sort of similarly tainted and poisoned and, and virtually everything else um, around the Black Lives Matter movement in this particular moment. Certainly the broader conversation about systemic racism, you know, it can certainly be true that institutions have this vestige of history and that there are all sorts of ways in which history has some implications for the various disparities that we experience and see and observe around us. Um, But the degree to which that's true is harder to tease out. And it is certainly possible to exaggerate it. And worse yet, I think it's very possible to, to make it the centerpiece of everything that we do in a way that requires us, or at least finds us, beginning to only regard people with respect to their race and ignoring the content of their character and the reality of their circumstance. And that is deeply distressing to me, perhaps the most distressing element of this current moment. So, you know, when I wrote my piece, I was trying to, I was trying to chart a ground that was different from the, the dynamic you describe where I would call it, race is almost everything. Like almost everything that interacts your life is through the prism of race. And the converse of that is sort of on the rise, right, where you say it's almost nothing. Nobody's willing to say there's no such thing as a racist, right? There, rarely would you hear any human being say that, but they would say it's almost irrelevant. 
And another side would say it's almost omnipresent. And what I was trying to do was say, okay, look, I kind of have this unique kind of control group. (laughs) So I raised two children who are um, white, blonde hair, blue eyed, and uh, not quite as white as I am, but close to it. And then we adopt a child who's African-American and our our like, literally, literally African American. She's from Ethiopia, correct? correct? Yeah. She's from Ethiopia. Yes. Yeah. And things changed. Now that didn't mean that they changed every single day. It just means that there were persistent, recurring things that, that happened. That doesn't mean that every time we walked into Gap, we were on alert, or every time we walked into Nordstroms or whatever. Um, but there were things that occurred with regularity that never occurred with our older two kids. Um, And then that's even putting aside all the alt-right, the tidal wave of alt-right nonsense from an evil from 2015 and 2016. So what I was trying to do was say, okay, look, I think I get where people are coming from now. And I just kind of wrote it as if I'm not writing for the people who think race is almost everything. I'm writing Mm -hmm. for the people who think race is almost nothing. And I get, I get where you're coming from, and and here's what, how I wanted to change the paradigm of where you're where you're going from here. Where you're coming from is very similar to where I was after I left my rural Kentucky high school, where I saw racism flat out up close. It was there. Then you go to the college educated white world in you know Nashville, Tennessee, evangelical college. You're just not seeing racism. Like mm-hmm. racism is frowned upon. And then you go enter in the, you know, go to law school or Harvard was very focused on being anti-racist back in early 1990s. Critical race theory was ascendant at that time. Mm-hmm. And so you're just surrounded by, and then every sort of system you're exposed to in your professional life is anti-racist. So you have your diversity training, you have your um, equal opportunity affirmative action employer, you have, you know, all of this stuff you hear about implicit bias and all of the system that you're experiencing is specifically anti-racist. And then you hear people say, wait, we have a problem with systemic racism. And I was like, okay, hold on now. And that's why I did this thought experiment. I said, let's just imagine one out of every 10 white people are racist. And, and if that's the case, then, then, then it's not going to be socially acceptable in white circles to talk about racist stuff because the other nine are not going to be racist and they're not going to want to hear it. So in that community, you're not going to be conscious at all. You're going to think, what? Racism? Huh? I never see it. I just experience all this other stuff I just said. But if you're African-American and there's one out of every 10 white people you interact with are racist, well, it's going to be not necessarily omnipresent, but recurring in over the course of your life at different rates for different people, depending on communities. And so that's how you kind of get to this point where a, a person, a white person would say, I never see racism. And a black person could say, how could you not see racism? Because these different experiences. And then what I tried to do was sort of back away from adjudicating a definition of systemic racism. Because mm-hmm. I get really tired of these terms that are not self-defining. And they have mm-hmm. one word sort of in plain English and then they have one meaning in plain English and another meaning in sort of progressive circles. And mm-hmm. so you can never pin down the debate, right? And so um, instead, I just put forward some basic propositions, just basic propositions where, you know, I said, look, 
slavery was legal for over 200 years. Um, Jim Crow was almost 100 years. Total, uh, there was legal discrimination against black Americans for 345 years. We've had 56 years of contentious change since that time. You don't cure the consequences of 345 years in 56 contentious years. Don't have to go into all of the permutations, but let's just agree on that. And then here are some race-neutral solutions to some specific problems. And that's when I went into qualified immunity, fewer criminal laws, doing something about police unions. So my goal really was not to adjudicate, and, and I've specifically said this, you don't have to get all the way to criminal to critical race theory and intersectionality and implicit bias and all of that to agree with the proposition that something that was set up in 345 years doesn't go away in 56. Mm-hmm. And there are some concrete things we can do. And that was the basic point. But I totally hear you on the danger of the view that says everything is race. And I think that's a dangerous view. And it also, by the way, ends, ends up um, creating a counter reaction of white identity. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, everything it has, is race, everything is race. Yeah, and it has. Absolutely. It has. Yeah. So I totally see that. So what I was just trying to do is say, let's kind of back away from all that, um, back away from the the buzzwords and drill down on people's actual experiences and sort of actual consequences and just leave it there. And can we have that conversation? So that, that was the goal. Well, David, I think that was a, a very eloquent response and I totally get the perspective. And as I said earlier, I, I think the project that you're undertaking to try to uh, facilitate understanding across enemy lines, so to speak, is an important and noble one. And I think that the metaphor that you use early on uh, where you describe, you know, being able to, to, or how your politics and your, your philosophical conclusions are informed by where you sit is extremely important and something that people often forget. At the moment, though, it seems like the people who really forget this lesson more than anyone else are the, I, I, I was going to say, like the woke scolds. Um, which it sounds immediately derisive, but it's fine because they've said so many nasty things about me and my, my pals recently. I'm going to go with (laughs) it. Um, they're the ones who perhaps need to learn that lesson most. Um, because in many instances, it seems to be that they're not merely unforgiving. They seem to be willing to indulge in all kinds of, of zero sum, um, like bad faith, argumentation in order to make their points and in order to silence their adversaries and in order to set up a new set of rules by which you're not even allowed to disagree. Your disagreement, your silence, in fact, is an attack on their principles and is proof of your disloyalty and it's proof of your, of your awfulness. And it's a fight between two groups, one of whom wants everyone to have a seat at the table and the other who wants to murder you for your apostasy, for even suggesting right. that there should be additional shares. And in a battle like that, like the, I wonder about, you know, the, the appropriate level of concern. So specifically to turn it back to the race thing and the specter of racism, uh, I remember a conversation I had with John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry and Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams and Coleman Hughes to use everyone's full name. Um, and I think I said to them something along the lines of it is entirely possible that because of my perspective, I miss 
certain instances of, you know, implicit bias or someone's, you know, racist intent when I go into a store and they're following me. I just don't presume that your interest here is a function of my appearance. And I don't know that missing those things, those essentially false, what are those false positives or false negatives? I don't know, but I don't know if missing those cues actually in, in pairs my life in any sort of significant way. On the other hand, I think going through life, imagining that everyone is kind of racist and imagining that every interaction with people is a function of their racial bias and imagining, as Van Jones does, that white people have a latent virus, a brain virus inside of them, uh, which is super racism. And once it's activated, it turns them into... Uh, murderous neo-Nazis who are willing to call the police on you to try to kill you because you're black. Like, and that is an actual, he didn't say it exactly like that, but he did say the brain virus part. Like, I think I'm better off. And in general, I think most people are better off. And what, it, I and can I just add, yeah. And to add to that quickly is the differentiation that, that we've lost in, in so many ways that, that, you know, I saw, you know, people attacking you, right? And, and, and when Barry recommended that, you, that you know, people read you and me and a few other people. Mm. Um, and somebody from her own organization, who shall remain no. nameless. Because Nicole Hannah-Jones. No, no we can If life is one giant subtweet, <laughs> let's keep it going. And <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't subtweet. Subtweeting is for cowards. I'm coming well, for your there, was, <laughs> it, it, there was white nationalists on that list, according to her. And this was mm. people that Barry Weiss, who's quite liberal in, in a lot of ways, uh, said. So it, w- when we've devalued this, because I've said this before, I mean, when when people on the list, that list of just, you know, recommended journalists are white nationalists, what does one call a white nationalist? What does right. one call an actual same, Nazi? Same thing. Same thing. Because the goal what, is not it, to downgrade the insult. The goal is to upgrade it um, and and make it even more severe and cast a wider net, perhaps mm. because there's a deficit of actual Nazis and an actual racist. And the reason I bring this up is because you say about people's biases, and I think it's really good. And I mean, I have a, a nine-year-old, and it's really good that, that I explain to her to not indulge these things that she already has as a nine-year-old. She, you know, we live in a neighborhood that is, is largely Hasidic. So she says, like, this is what Hasidic people do. Because they live a life in a very different way. And so she says, this is a Hasidic, this is what Hasidic Jews do. And I say, no, 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 that's, that, you can't really say that. And here's why. And I explain it to her. But I think that, that, I, that this is a, this quixotic uh, you know, campaign to root out all bias is rather different than saying that we should get rid of and not allow and accept racism naked or otherwise in mainstream society. We should not. I don't believe that that is something that, that we should excuse or, or allow. And I think that David's daughter and you, Camille, are quite happy that that's, that's a thing now, that it's not popular and we, it is not, and everyone does whisper these things, right? And I'm glad that they do because in the past they didn't. There was no whispering of these things. And it's a great, great progress. And of course, it's, we never like to admit that there's any progress at all, but there's been enormous amounts of progress. But to David's point in his piece, it is, it's an incomplete uh, mission. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The one thing that I do wonder to your point, uh, Camille, is that do we disaggregate 
some of these things because I hear people with protests talking about white people as an undifferentiated mass, talking about mm-hmm. cops as an undifferentiated mm-hmm. mass. We, this kind of group, we, we just do this and we're making uh, some of it acceptable, some of it unacceptable. And I'm glad that it's unacceptable in, in, in some ways. I'm kind of bummed out that it's not unacceptable in every way. But at what point do we, do we allow, not allow, allow is the wrong word. Do we acknowledge that every country in the world Every group in the world has these kind of biases against other groups. And, is, and, and it might be not the best use of our tri- time trying to eliminate all of those from everybody's brains um, and, and, and sort of policing them all the time and wondering what's in somebody's brain when they do X and Y and Z. And I've pointed out in the past, it was always the Daily Mail, which I always thought was quite funny. When <laughs> t- two people of different races got in, involved in some sort of argument, a fight, ended in a murder, whatever it might be, it would be in the headline. You know, white guys beaten up by black guy, black guys beaten up by white guy. It doesn't matter. And then you could find out that they were best friends and they had a disagreement over like a football game or something. But it was in that headline. It was coded in that headline because it was always kind of trying to sniff it out. And I think that sometimes that's has a bad, a bad result. And that, you know, I do wonder if how we do differentiate between these degrees because I think we're losing the degrees now. If people are calling Barry Weiss's friends and people she likes white nationalists, <laughs> there's a woman who wrote a book about anti-Semitism right. and white nationalism in the recent past has often meant neo-Nazis. See, you know, uh, one of your point about the sort of the woke scolds and the, and the intolerance that in that illiberal intolerance, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but I think this is such a great construct. Some movements seek converts. Some movements seek heretics. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm a former yeah. trial lawyer. And my disposition, because I'm going to a jury or, you know, even when you're litigating and you're litigating in front of a judge, you're constantly seeking converts. You're not, you're not seeking out that you're not rooting out the heretics. You're constantly seeking right. converts. Yeah. And I think over time in a functioning constitutional republic, that approach tends to prevail. What worries me about the present moment and the constant flight 93-ing of the, of the present moment is there is sort of this reflexive, uh, this very, very powerful tribal pull that basically says, okay, even though the person who's super woke and intolerant, I don't really want them to run things but at least they're not Republicans. <laughs> it creates this sort of negative polarization that pulls each side to those poles. And that, that's what really worries me. I think that in a functioning discourse, the side that is seeking converts tends to defeat the, time, the side that is seeking out the heretics. But that's, that's you know, uh, the question, it, what is the discourse now? Is the is negative polarization pulled us to such a place yeah. that I am willing to wrap my arms? You know, and this is something we saw with you know one of the reasons why I was so alarmed by the fervent embrace of Donald Trump is mm. that negative polarization had pulled us to such an extent that people were willing to wrap their arms around a guy that if you had said in 2014 to even some of his principal defenders in places like the Federalist and elsewhere. In six years, you're going to be going to the barricades for a guy who's done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, all the way to yeah. double Z. They would be offended and angry at you that you had you thought so little of their character. 
Mm-hmm. And but that's what negative polarization does. And that's what worries me. That's the thing that makes me nervous that the goodness of this present moment could be swamped and could be yeah, rather yeah. easily swamped. Yeah. And to, and to and one final point on this. I mean, you guys are talking the, about this before um, that the, the reaction that it creates in, you know, some of the more radical precincts of the right and the responses you see when you look on 4chan and the rest of it. And, and, and the other thing I was thinking about today was that this weird effect that I don't think anyone's really talked about much is that is that w- when toppling statues and when saying mm. that the Thomas Jefferson's of, uh, you know, George Washington, now it's now it's their turn and the rest is that when you take people off of pedestals who deserve it. Um, I think that's a, probably a good thing and we should do it in a little more ordered way. We shouldn't have, you know, some kid with a, with a mask on deciding, um, what is the correct read on, on American history. We saw this with an Italian journalist too, by the way, who was, who was, um, whose uh, statue was defaced and, uh, and, uh, Beppe Severnini is the journalist, Italian journalist who's, who's, um, done a lot of work in the U.S. and written some books in English actually responded because this guy was, in in a mainstream liberal Italian newspaper and saying, God, this is a this is a problem. And what and what he said I thought was interesting was that um and it got me thinking about these things, is that when you go through somebody's past, and this journalist had a very unfortunate period of being a, a, a Mussolini supporter and actually volunteering for the criminal Italian war in Abyssinia, now Ethiopia. And um and later was arrested by the Nazis twice and had a, had a moment where he was like, this is bad. And he became a sort of liberal figure in the end of his life, but he was this, you know, statues defaced and he was called a fascist and the rest of it. Um, okay. But what Severnini said, I thought was pretty interesting. And it, it was that, you know, when you do this sort of thing about people's past, you end up with just with saints, right? It's the only people you can put up on pedestals or saints. But the thing that I was thinking is that, is that to the point of creating more kind of racial turmoil by, by this level of sort of, you know, granular policing of people's language and the rest of it, is that when you do the same thing with statues of people's past, to get to the only, and, and to Severnini's point, the only people that are allowed to be on pedestals are, are, are saints, you start falsifying history again. The, yeah. You have to, because you mm-hmm. have to, when you have Angela Davis as your Twitter avatar, you have to really <laughs> pretend that Angela Davis had a pretty exemplary life and those pictures of her hugging Eric Honecker and sitting mm. with the Politburo of East Germany never existed. You know, Asada Shakur, Asada taught me. Well, where does Asada mm-hmm. live now? She's not teaching many people many things. Maybe she's teaching, teaching some Cuban kids things because she's on the run for, for uh, uh, you know, Killing a cop, a New Jersey state state trooper. So every time you do this, you have to have that 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 reaction, which is you know, which is what the, the sort of Soviet reaction, which you create these things because by your own standards, no one can exist on statues. Mm-hmm. So anyway, a kind of a slightly off off the topic point, but just, it, but, but I, it is related in a way to to, to having these countervail these these things that happen that you don't expect to. Happen. I think that we can all agree that every statue should be either Freddie Mercury or Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> I have a picture of me uh, in front Barbie. of Freddie Mercury in Montreux, in, Montreux, in Switzerland. It's there's a, there's a Fre- it's great. It's like there's a Freddie Mercury statue. Twenty foot tall Freddie Mercury. Statue. Twenty foot tall Freddie Mercury. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking yeah. about my fellow Tennessean, Dolly. That's right. Like, oh yeah, yes. yeah. I agree yeah. with that. Yes. No, you know my I, I have I have a modest proposal regarding monuments, and that is more of them. Hmm. So 
the Union Army lost the vast lion's share of its casualties in the in the old Confederacy. The lion's share of its casualties. That's where the officers fell. That's where the enlisted fell. That's where George Thomas, General George Thomas, was the rock of Chickamauga and one of the pivotal moments in the battles in the West. And you could go on and on and on for examples of Union Army courage in the South. Hey, why don't we put up monuments to them and provide more plaques and more explanation? Um, I mean, I live in a battlefield. I'm in Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin, Tennessee was a battlefield of one of the last major uh, Civil War uh, battles in the Western theater. General General Hood launched a suicidal frontal attack on Union lines to try a sort of a desperate – attempt to cut off Sherman's march and and trying to cut off and and trying to take back Tennessee vicious fighting so the whole the whole town where I am is a battlefield we have a huge confederate cemetery we have a statue to a confederate soldier in the town square we need comprehensive in that on that battlefield and in this town that is the battlefield where is the the statue to the union soldier where is the statue honoring the union general who won the battle you know, like I, I feel like that that could be a cathartic moment in some ways when you erect a new monument that says, "Look, this is the sacrifice that was has not been appreciated in this region, and now we appreciate it." I think that could be. That's just a modest. That's like my my little uh, contribution to the debate. Yeah, I think the one thing that that um, I worry about there is that you know HBO Max has has said we're putting back. Uh, we're putting Gone with Wind back on our streaming service, and now it's going to be introduced by <laughs> a black scholar, mm. which I thought was pretty interesting. They said it was a black scholar. I yeah. mean, there's a scholar of the period who knows yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know why it has to be racially specific, but it's a, a, a black scholar. You do know why. Of course I do. But, <laughs> yeah. but the thing is, is that I, I, I fear that, too, because there is a sense – amongst dumb people that there are <laughs> historians and there are not there there are non-historians and the historians are right and the non-historians are wrong and they don't understand that within the in the community of historians whether it's you know scholars of Nazi Germany the civil the civil war that there's massive disagreements on these things they think there's a right answer and we'll just have these people come in and they'll give the right answer and then everything will be fine because mm-hmm. of course we are then choosing a vision of history by the scholar that we choose to introduce this thing. And it's also this unbelievably condescending thing from television executives in New York that Americans can't watch uh, Gone with the Wind without thinking that slavery was just the best thing in the world and the Civil War was a laugh. I don't think anyone actually thinks that and they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Holy smokes, one of the main texts, not, not even subtext, it's just all over the, pay, uh, the screen for Gone with the Wind is you reap what you sow. Mm. Like you, you had these, you know, and you saw this early, this romanticized view of what the Civil War was going to be. We're going to go and we're going to whip the Yankees in this sort of, you know, romanticized vision of antebellum life. And then the Yankees come. And then one of the things you have is this memorable scene of the, the field hospital or the, the hospital for the Confederate wounded that just, stretches out as far as the eye can see. And a lot of that was like, uh, be careful what you ask for. You were spoiling this for this fight, you know, and it came to you. There, there's a, a lot of reap what you sow in Gone with the Wind that, yeah, it's filtered through the 1930s and all of what that entails. But there's an element there that this this is not, 
this is it is there's a lot in there that is not consistent with the narrative you hear now of that it's nothing but confederate propaganda yeah and, and look i think that usually that, um, usually i haven't seen works. i haven't seen that movie in many 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 years so it, it's not I, I shouldn't comment on it at all but I, I do worry again that not about specifically about the movie and I'm not coming to the movie is that, is that <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that are only satisfied if we get back to the place that we were in the 1940s, but just from the other side that we're going to do the sands of Iwo Jima. We do those types of movies, but they're going to be wicked Confederate soldiers as opposed to wicked Japanese soldiers. And mm. it's going to get to that black and white thing. Because if you don't have that, we're going to need a team of historians to explain that these people were actually bad if we humanize them at all. And I don't like when people say, oh, you've humanized that because the opposite of that's dehumanizing people. Right. And I don't, I don't, I mean, if there's a Soviet soldier in a movie about, you know, Afghanistan, pretend, pretend that exists. And it's a human character who's been thrown into this war in 1979 because he had no choice. I don't hate that. And I'm not going to say, well, this is a pro-Soviet movie. We have to tell these people that the invasion of Afghanistan was brutal. It was, of course. But we get into this kind of adjudicating all of these things and trying to steer history because of the Orwellian, you know, 1984, you know, controls the past, controls the future. Everyone forgets that who controls the present line too. And, you know, that, that it's worrying me a lot that it's, oh, they're lopping off the head of a, of, of a slaver and throwing it. Yeah, I, I can't believe they have a statue of this scumbag. And this is, of course, what's happened in Africa in the era of, of de, decolonizing and, you know, you know, lopping Cecil Rhodes' head off. Okay, I just am not sure if that is the, the mob that I want deciding what is appropriate history. I'm just – Am I wrong about way. that? Maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't know. I'm just bummed that uh, – HBO Max stole my virtuous decision to, on principle, never watch fucking Gone with the Wind. It's like, oh yeah, no, no, fuck, no, fuck like, that romantic yeah. South shit. I wasn't yeah, gonna yeah. watch that. Yeah. Uh, and now yeah. it's like anyone can do that because it was like taken from them. So that like uh, yeah. steals the whole. Point. So you're saying now you want it's it's like your parents telling you not to smoke. Now you want to. Pack <laughs> I'm gonna go to now Camille's house and watch, watch Song of the South. I was just gonna. Say, I can't. I can't say anything about Gone with the Wind. I have recently watched Song of the South. I've watched it multiple times. I will say that it is unfairly maligned. Most people who've written and pre performed criticisms of it on their podcast, let's say, I think get the film wrong in ways that suggest to me that they haven't even watched the damn thing. Um, but I, I interrupted you, Matt. I'd know just to say that if, um, my modest proposal to, to, uh, supplement David's is that as we pull down the statues, let's do like they did in uh hungary in budapest um uh, I, i've heard since they've been this near, near gorky park um there's a few places in in communist east europe which obviously changed all their street names and and tore down lots of their statues and all this uh the hungarians since they were goulash commies uh, uh they're like oh you know what let's save those statues let's put them all in a park like the big, big Lenins and the big, big Stalins. Let's put these gigantor <laughs> things in a park on the outskirts of town, pipe in the International and make a creepy park out of it. And it's awesome. <laughs> it is, it is super <laughs> duper awesome. So let's have your That's Nathan amazing. Bedford Forest, whatever the, the, the ghoul's name was. Uh, let's get all of those. If you're going to collect them, they went uh, after, um, 
Thomas Jefferson in Portland, Oregon. Um, so I guess the whole state of Jefferson thing is really a north-south divide in, in, the, in, in Oregon. Um, but uh, no, let's put let's put all of these into uh, just one of the weirdest like uh, uh, parks, a statue park, um, and uh, and creep people out with weird music. David, at, you're you're in the South. You're a Southerner. Can you explain something to me this, as a Northerner who doesn't believe that any of these Confederate statues should have existed in the first place? Is that why? You know, I know it's a very basic argument. I heard a million times. Can you tell me how? I'm not saying that you do this, but how people in the South defend the the losing army <laughs> getting to erect statues of their losing generals. I missed the von Manstein and Rommel statues in Cologne, but maybe I'm missing something here. Well, is, there, you know, is there a more nuanced argument that I'm missing? Yeah, well, so, I mean, you're familiar with the lost cause myth, right? Yes. So if you have had generations of people – so. If you're talking about the big statues of Lee and Jackson yeah. and some of these others, um, there's the lost cause myth here comes into play, which soothes the Southern conscience by saying this was not about slavery. The the secession was not about slavery. It's about states' rights. It's reconnecting with, you know, the spirit of 1776 and that the Confederate army uh, was hopelessly outnumbered performed heroic feats of arms, but was ultimately defeated by a criminal union army that had to resort to, resort to war crimes to defeat our our valiant, honorable boys. And so there's a sense that the Confederate army and the lost cause myth was, and look, the Army of Northern Virginia at its height under Lee's command was an extremely formidable fighting force. I mean, I don't think anybody could dispute that. But they, they would say that the... Um, it was uh, it was a fight against overwhelming odds for the cause of liberty, and though uh, they were vanquished, their cause was, if not just, it was justified, and we're going to honor their valor. Okay, so that's sort of the lost cause myth, and it's hard to overstate the extent to which that is the narrative. It is the narrative that Southern kids were brought up with, white Southern kids were brought up with for a long, long time. David, um, is it is it and, is it fair to describe it as a myth, though? Uh, I, I wonder about uh, the fact. No, this isn't no. particularly dangerous. The fact <laughs> oh, is oh that in a contemporary context, uh, we know that go. conflicts have multiple causes. Yeah. Like we, no one imagines that the the Gulf War was exclusively about oil. Well, actually, that's not true. Some people do. Um, or that it was exclusively about... It was about you know, babies being thrown out of incubators. Or, or, that was, or it was about, yeah, it was about George testimony. W. Bush seeking revenge. It, it's certainly the case that the people who fought in the conflict, most of whom wouldn't have owned slaves, even if they had some ugly sentiments about black people and some ugly sentiments about, the, uh, about whether or not slavery ought to be appropriate... I imagine their ugly sentiments were probably matched by most of their northern foes who also would not have marched off to battle if they thought they were going to battle in order to liberate the Negroes. That would not have been a much of a rallying cry for Abraham Lincoln. So I, I, I ask if it's fair to call it a myth. It's certainly wrong to suggest that the Civil War isn't fundamentally about slavery. But I don't think it's at all wrong to to actually try to embody the space that those people lived in Beyond slavery, there was a universe of motivations for people who participated in the war themselves. And it doesn't seem unfair at all for 
one of those narratives to become sort of the animating thing that motivates people to want to build statues or to name streets after Stonewall Jackson. I was going to say Jackson Stonewall because I was just sitting at that corner the other day here in Front Royal, Virginia, where I see a lot of magazines and everyone is generally very nice to me. First, the the foundation of Lost Cause myth is the is the false narrative about the reason for secession. Um, so the the sort of the moral foundation of the lost cause myth is to minimize the reason for secession which is mm-hmm. and it's all it's all over the articles of secession i mean like this is not a a mystery you can go and read the documents that the secession conventions and the legislatures voted on it is right yeah. there okay yeah it is also true that the union army did not invade to end slavery so you have a nation that is created uh, you know, in, in the Confederate States of America is a nation that's created. It is not recognized by the Union. It is invaded for the purpose of forcible reunification, not for abolition. Okay. Abolition mm-hmm. came later. So if you're a regular Joe and uh, or, you know, you're an, you're an officer, whatever, you have an army coming into your state that is not coming in. With peaceable intention, it is coming to invade, and it is not coming to to end slavery. Like the Emancipation Proclamation did not occur until later in the conflict, and so there is, you know, right there you have um, individuals who are confronting an invading army, and you know, look, I mean, I, I I'm speaking about my own ancestors here who were all on the Confederate side, um, fought at Shiloh, at Vicksburg, Atlanta. I mean, not Atlanta, Nashville, Franklin. And, you know, this is where a lot of them were coming from. And, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that I think people, the Southerners of the lost cause myth, they, they minimize the, uh, they minimize the cause of secession, the true cause, which was slavery, Mm -hmm. Fear of slave rebellion. And then the uh, people who look at back at the conflict, a lot of historians who want to understandably um, debunk the lost cause myth, they don't focus on the fact that the invasion wasn't for liberation of slaves. Mm-hmm. They, they look at it as here you had the, sla- the, the uh, slave army and the liberating army. That wasn't how it started. That wasn't how it started. You had the army of the slave nation confronting the army of the Union, which was perfectly content for much of the conflict to reunify the nation and keep slavery. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, this is just true. I mean, like, this is just true. And I would say an awful lot of the folks who wore blue were fighting to restore the Union and not— it's many, it, it, you know, there's some accounts that indicate that the Union soldiers became more radicalized against slavery as the war went on. Sure. Uh, but certainly as it started, that was not the intent. That was not why they signed up. Certain, some did. But that's not why they signed up. And so, you know, look, that none of that justifies secession. None of mm-hmm. that justifies secession. But what it does, it, it, it makes it a little bit different than the narrative that says the whole thing from the get-go was slavery versus abolition. And, and that's, that's not the, the way it was. Just want to point out that it was my ancestor who was keeping your ancestors down in Vicksburg. Um, 
Major General <laughs> oh, and- Peter Joseph Osterhaus led the uh, – he was the uh, occupier of Vicksburg in like, 1863 and 1864. So it was like you're a welcome. Great, a great, great – yeah, it was like a great, great, great grandfather who surrendered to your ancestors. Oh, my God. That would be awesome. Yes. Was he a French? Uh, I, I don't think he was a French. Okay. Yeah, I don't think he's a French. But yeah, he surrendered. I, I guess now we're going to have the Robbie – Suave yeah, uh, see? tweet about that. <laughs> do, you, do you surrender to Matt the Welch right now? The <laughs> surrender it goes all the way. I'm back. not even sure what you're surrendering and my to. My ancestor yeah. was a damn right immigrant, so you people can't even like you native borns. You like, people at the heel of you a people? German. Yeah, yeah. Is it German? Yeah, my yeah. So, I've, I've been surrendering since 1863. <laughs> my people. <laughs> can I can I ask a question about the statues and just the general? The desire it seems to to atone for historical awfulness. Who is being protected by the removal of these statues? By the by the elimination of particular words, by the renaming of bases. Is there a sense that people were quietly suffering some kind of harm because these things existed? I, I remember growing up as a kid watching the Dukes of Hazard. And like loving Daisy Duke and seeing the rebel flag on top of the General Lee. And, you know, they're just some good old boys. Never meaning no harm. <laughs> and, and, I, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I never thought to myself, you know, I, I should be a slave today. If only the South had won. I never thought that. I just thought that Boss Hog was an idiot and I want the Duke brothers to win. True story. Uh, when I was in, in sixth grade, I convinced uh, my my best friend who was uh, had dark hair. I was blonde hair when I had hair. We convinced some third graders that we were Bo and Luke Duke. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I, they were totally convinced. But I, you know, my, my general. You didn't go to the on, best school in Tennessee, did you? <laughs> this was this was a. Rural Kentucky public school. And okay. the, answer is, and the answer is no. It was stamping, stamping ground, stamping ground elementary and stamping ground Kentucky. Oh but, my. Yeah. Um, Check your wow. privilege. Check your privilege. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the monument decision is a local community decision. And I think in many ways, and, you know, this will inflame the Twitter sphere. Uh, look. You know, we had for a while, it felt like we had for a while, some momentum on things that changes that could like literally perhaps save lives and save people from unjustified and excessive incarceration. Some Mm. real moves like unifying and turning this movement into, wait a minute, let's look at things like no-knock raids. Let's look at things like, you know, qualified immunity. Let's look at... um, Excessive cash bail, you know, half a million people right now in the United States of America are in prison, in prison without having been convicted of a crime. And, you know, some of that, some of that is because of flight risks and dangers, but some of it's just because they can't come up with cash bail for nonviolent mm-hmm. offenses. And so you have these things that you talk about really transformative, and then it turns into culture war. And, and look, look, I mean, you know, the, there are people who would hear me say that and absolutely just go ballistic and say, you don't know what it's like to look up and see that statue, you know, and, and I, and I hear you make the case in your local community about that statue, make the case in your Mm -hmm. community, go to the town council, make the argument, God bless you. And you make the argument, 
But man, in this national moment, it it feels like yanking down these things and turning the argument in this direction. You know, I don't know. It just it 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 feels like you're suddenly majoring in minors um, rather than majoring in the majors. It, it just is my view, and I feel like you you mm-hmm. have these long awaited and look reasons coverage on some of these criminal justice issues has been just gold for years. And you kind True of, and it's like you can yeah. see it, like this sort of far off distant shore, and it, it seems to be getting closer. And then all of a sudden, you're talking about Robert E. Lee, you know, and and or you're talking about Christopher Columbus, who you know wasn't a Confederate, or you're talking about Thomas Jefferson, and you're like, wait, hold on. I mean, we're talking, we we have this distant shore here, mm-hmm. where, and this is so delicate. This is so delicate, and we've got like in a majority, and. Darn it. Here comes the statue argument. And I wonder what how this will shake out because I think there's going to be a lot of positive change. I think there're going to be when you there'll be a passel of legislation. Been, yeah. But it has been about criminal justice reform and what I worry about is that that people will say, "Well, this is the way this stuff gets done." And they mm. won't be totally wrong either, by the way, because mm. it, it has gotten done under these circumstances. In the past, you couldn't say that because if you look at the divide between, you know, SNCC and the Panthers and, you know, Stokely Carmichael and the more radical elements of black nationalism, is it, you know, they kind of flamed out and didn't really accomplish much. And mm-hmm. so what you talk about when you talk about the Panthers, like, well, you know, they had a free breakfast program. It was great. I really love this free <laughs> breakfast program. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, the murders were bad, but the free breakfast was great. Okay. But now, I mean, I, I, you see this, this is kind of a Panther-like element in people who, who really deify the Panthers in the past and don't remember the kind of disagree, the very strong disagreements from the people like Bayard Rustin and, and, you know, who is considered a sellout in the eyes of, you know, Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver. And those, but those guys lost the debate, right? That's always mm-hmm. how it was, it was presumed. And now it, this is stuff is going to happen when they're winning and they're mm-hmm. winning the debate now in, in a very, very big way. I think, um, they might not win in November and they might not win even in local elections, but as far as the sort of, you know, the debate amongst, you know, the media, I should say, and the media mm-hmm. does elevate people to these places that they probably don't deserve and don't have huge amounts of support. I mean, as remember that we've talked about a lot in the show that I guess it was the hidden tribe study that showed you the, yeah. the sort of liberalism and the mainstream and, and liberalism on Twitter. And the difference was, was a, you know, 800,000 degrees. It was, it was pretty dramatic. And we're seeing that again. So, I mean, you know, I think most Americans and we said this at the top of the show too, black and white kind of abhor a lot of this stuff and just think, yeah. no, because, I mean, how many people will die as a result of there being, you know, a racist police force in, or, or racist elements of a police force um, in, let's just say, Minneapolis, right? That's what started this off. And how many people, how many excess deaths do you have when there is no Minneapolis police force? I think that that's something a lot of people in Minneapolis think about in the affected communities, that people, communities are affected by, by, by massive problems with crime and not people who are in the West Village. And they're, you know, writing their articles for for magazines and stuff in very nice apartments. And it's just that disconnect is so big. And I do know that those people, when these good, positive things actually happen and come out of this, will say that, well, all of it was good. Yeah. And without this movement, we never yeah. would have had it. So The costs will not be fully counted. And I, I, I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast, but a couple of weeks ago, I did uh, a, a thing with Roland Fryer, who's at Harvard. Or maybe I did. I mentioned it somewhere. 
but it's worth yeah, mentioning the, again because of what Manhattan you just Institute one, right? Yeah, you just underscored it, Moynihan. That the 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 actual consequences of these upsets with respect to this kind of Ferguson effect dynamic, um, which he describes it in a way that is slightly different, than, I think, than than Heather McDonald describes it, um, but. Roland in this in this study, which at the time had not been released yet, I've yet to read, um, but he described uh, before it was published, um, talked about the actual carnage that is unleashed in certain communities when these police departments come under a great deal of scrutiny. Um, because usually after a homicide in some area, you know, cops will flood the zone, and more cops does in fact lead to less crime. Um, it, it's certainly possible that it also leads to some other bad things, but that is a thing. Um, and when they are less likely to do that, when they're being heavily scrutinized and in some instances unfairly scrutinized or perhaps over-scrutinized is a better phrase, um, there can be some real repercussions to that and the tangible cost it can be measured in lives. And to the extent one is concerned about black lives, it could certainly be measured in black lives if that's more important to you, which if it is, you should you should get that checked out because I don't I don't like the sound of it. Um, and that's that's tangible. Or, or if there's in no Chicago police force is tangible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's happened in Chicago is tangible. And the alternative that's that I've seen be proposed and I've seen, you know, d- defended in very poetic prose and various opinion columns, the the beautiful situation that's likely to happen when you just take all the money you're spending on policing and spend all of it on social services it is like suddenly all of the mentally ill will now be taken care of in ways that we couldn't have imagined before. And all of the crime will be prevented early because we'll be able to you know have community leaders intercede on their behalf in the likelihood of waste, fraud, and abuse coming in and you know, making those programs perhaps less successful than one imagines is is something that doesn't even get like a glancing consideration. And I think that is, that's pretty fraught. Uh, as much you know, as I'd like to see a general reduction in the size and scope of government and an actual reduction in the number of things we make illegal, um, I, I worry about defund the police and abolish the police as a mantra on its own. Well, and the other fact is it's just going to run up against reality that when people call 911 and they're scared, they're going to want somebody to show up who can help them. And you can disband the police, you disband the police and then call it, you know, the Minnesota committee or Minneapolis committee on public safety. And it would be, I'd be reminded of the who's don't get, won't get fooled again. It would be meet the new cops, same as the old (laughs) cops. I mean, so a lot of this is just. A lot of this, I just, I honestly, I, I just, maybe I'm totally wrong, but I literally ignore it yeah. um, because I think a lot of it is just performative stuff um, for activists and performative stuff online. And, and the reality is, no, we're not going to abolish the police. Um, we can reform. You know, one of the interesting things about that study is I believe that in the cities where there was a viral shooting incident, mm-hmm. there was negative crime consequences. But in cities where there weren't viral shooting incidents, but there were meaningful steps at reform, there were actual right. improved outcomes. Right. And that's worth knowing and studying and and how can, you know, how can we apply the lessons of the cities where there were not the viral shooting incidents and learn from the cities where there were the viral shooting incidents. But a lot of this I I've, I've just gotten to this point where I feel like wait a week 
wait mm-hmm. two weeks and Twitter moves on and a lot of this stuff moves on, but what's left behind is like actual legislation. That's also true. Just post Ferguson, everyone was paying attention in the summer of 2014 to Ferguson and its aftermaths and, and the uh, re- over responses to riots and a bunch of other stuff. And then people followed the shiny ball elsewhere. But meanwhile, criminal justice reform kept happening uh, largely on the state mm-hmm. and local level. And in a lot of places that would surprise people who weren't paying attention to the particular issue, yeah. but it kept on going and it has been. And that's and like laying the foundation, uh, not just for the first step act, but even for the moment that we're living in right now, the, the, the reason that we are talking about at least some of these reforms. And I give credit to campaign zero, which is the offshoot of black lives matter to some degree on this mm-hmm. too, because they've, they've kept their eye on the ball in terms of reforms um, so people have been doing the serious work um, even after the stupid controversy has moved on to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. And that happens frequently. I mean, you know, Texas, Texas has been a leader in prison reform and a lot of it happening way outside the scope of the national headlines. And so that's where, you know, I, I said I have this optimism. That's my optimism, you know, but it's the It seems to me the increasing power of Twitter, not decreasing power of Twitter to hijack a lot of these conversations, because, Mm -hmm. again, that's where everybody who cares the most and speaks the most about this is. And so it's going to punch above its weight. So why don't we yeah. all get off? Yeah, of it? you just convinced me it's this time. We, I mean, we've talked. We haven't said a positive thing about Twitter. All of us are on Twitter. What are we doing? Why, are we, why don't we just stop? Why don't we just get off of it? I actually have a lot of positive interactions on Twitter. I, I genuinely do. That's, I that's what you call them. A lot of people. Yeah. And I, I feel yeah. like I, I feel call like it solicitation. Able, <laughs> I feel like I'm able to advocate for good ideas there and and honestly to be a model of of good behavior for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, even even when I'm slapping someone, um, I try not to use ad hominem and just, you know, spurious nonsense. Uh, and I, I try to point out gen- you, genuine you fouls. Sometimes. Occasionally. You take a couple of swings. Occasionally. You have a good presence. You have a good presence. There are good voices Thank there. you. There are, there yeah. are absolutely good voices. It's- you, Nicole Hannah-Jones, there's a lot of people there, <laughs> you know, yep. that I enjoy reading on Twitter. But, we, yeah. we, we've been going for a while. I have thoroughly oh, enjoyed this and I, I would not mind extending it a little further. I am. I do have... Um, and I actually have for like the past week have Thomas's uh, voice rattling around in my head, who I've probably mentioned like four or five times in the last couple of podcasts. Um, but that's only because his book is probably the most indispensable one that someone might read now if they haven't read it. Um, his his most recent uh, book. Uh, but I, I keep hearing him say uh, that a commitment to anti-racism absent a commitment to being anti-race is insufficient. And uh, I've, I've thought a lot about that phrase recently and the various ways in which I think it's very true, probably because a commitment to anti-racism it does feel like a commitment explicitly to race. Um, and it's a commitment to imprecision and it's a, it's a determination to engage in racial essentialism and once that becomes a matter of policy in your workplace, and once it's fashioned into some sort of you know rule 
um, or, or legislative action, it is functionally racist. And I think it fuels tribal conflict and, and doesn't actually improve things uh, in the ways that people imagine. And I, I worry a lot about the degree to which that argument seems to have won the day and seems to go completely unchallenged uh, in many circles, that anti-racism is essentially just the the adopted, presumed correct position in many circles. And I think it's dangerous. And I, I, I want to see more people who are willing to confront it. And I, I want to have more nasty dust-ups with people who are advocating for it, because I think it's important for people to know that there is a an alternate point of view and a degree to which it doesn't go far enough as a remedy for anything. Even expanding beyond uh, race for a second, I, I, I wonder sometimes, and the last two weeks has been really hitting it home, um, essentialism in itself, like, or, you know, negative group characterization of outgroups, it, it must be some kind of psychological relief for a lot of people, like to be able to herd people. And they did this with you, Camille, online. I mean, uh, Michael was mentioning before, Barry uh, Weiss, our friend who's been on a bunch of times, um, simply tweeted out, um, here are some essential voices to follow in this time. And by the reaction to this tweet, it's amazing because I, I was one of the people tagged on it um, to see what a, an absolute monster that she was. But you can see, you can <laughs> feel the actual palpable sense of relief on people like, oh, good. Now I have a list of people who are provably irredeemable and I can make broad sweeping characterizations <laughs> uh, against them and yeah. other people. And you see this in, you know, take that list and other things out of it. Um, we're always hurting people with an ERD uh, into a group that we can say, okay, all of those people at, at least are totally rotten and we can absolutely assign and divine all of their motivations for it for all eternity. This happens on a daily basis in the discourse and it's bad. Essentialism is bad. Making broad negative characterizations of people based on their most basic like identifications is really, really bad. It's a bad habit of mind. Um, it's especially bad uh, when applied with race, uh, given the uh, the poison uh, of uh, in this country and in all countries. Um, but it's bad in general. It's like if 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 you are. Assuming that you know what someone thinks because they're a cop or because they're a Republican or a Democrat or a Bernie bro or this or that, kind of, and I say this with love because I'm a hippie, fuck you. <laughs> so I, I, do, I do, yeah, I do appreciate Matt that you've you've uh, compared Barry Weiss to uh, Bobby Kennedy in a way of that you know she is working for Joe McCarthy and uh, creating lists that are handy <laughs> for everybody yeah. else. And uh, but you know I, I it, it, that it makes me happy, and I get to quote my favorites. Um, uh, commie, uh, actual commie, uh, uh, songwriter Billy Bragg. Uh, if you got a blacklist, I want to be on it, which I think is a great line. In, uh, waiting for the, which, by the way, in a song that is that is named after a horrible event, it's called "Waiting for the Great Leap Forward." You know, mm. not the bad. Didn't didn't do the Chinese. really good song. Uh, really good song. But great, yeah. a really great song. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm I'm enjoying being being on that list of like uh, very esteemed uh, can people. I, can I end with some on brand Frenchism? Yes, Please. I like a good uh. Frenchism. <laughs> I mean, look, the founders, you know, what we call essentialism or identitarianism or 
there's many, many different names that can be applied to this very tr- deeply tribal phenomenon that like James Madison might call the violence of faction. And the founders are very worried about faction. And, um, you know, the, if my favorite Federalist paper is Federalist 10, which says that the, the cure, in essence, for factionalism is pluralism. And that's what we're missing. We're missing a commitment to pluralism here, a robust pluralism. And, and also mi- missing any kind of, and this is one of the points of my piece, is any sort of kind of humility or openness to persuasion. You know, I, I mean, one of my fa- favorite verses in the, in the Bible is Micah 6, 8, and it says, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? And it is to seek justice. That's like the Twitter mission statement. I know what justice is. I'm going to seek it. But it's also to love mercy and to walk humbly. And the latter two are completely missing from our discourse. To see the humanity and people who are utterly opposed to me to seek their uh, to seek their flourishing and to protect their rights that's missing, and then to have the humility to say, "Man, this is hard stuff." I mean, we're talking about 345 years of de jure discrimination, 56 years of contentious change. There is no Moses out there to lead us all to the promised land. Here, it's hard stuff. So we got to be open and humble and learn and. That, you know, that feels to me like there are voices like that out there, but that is not the dominant tone. Yeah. Well, I think it is. uh, I think we're good. Good to end there. Mr. French, thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. I think you are the third person to join us who is uh, who's run for president of the United States. Um, I, I did I think not that's run. (laughs) Almost (laughs) just an exploratory committee for 11 days. In May, I mean, yeah. one one could say one could say that Justin didn't actually run either. Then, well, right? true, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you know what I mean. But uh, I appreciate <laughs> you making some time to join us. This has been uh, enlightening and uh, I hope enjoyable for anyone in the audience. If it wasn't enjoyable for you, you're a monster, and you probably didn't listen mm-hmm. this far. So, yeah. bye, yeah, bye, bye. Matt, you let me forget to ask David the question about qualified immunity that this person sent to us. Yeah, it's just not that much of a question. It's not a question at all. It's just a statement that qualified immunity is only a concern for civil, not criminal trials, and that we should talk to you about this, David. That was my issue with it, Camille. I would have liked to convert that into a question, but it was also like, that's I mean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But... (laughs) Yeah, but the level of accountability that removing qualified immunity would introduce, I mean, just the financial. So there's the justice side of it, receiving compensation for having your rights violated that's indispensable. And then the accountability, the financial burden, I mean, of repeat, paying repeated civil rights awards. And and look, it's not like repealing qualified immunity means that cops lose every time. You still have to prove the civil rights violation. and. And look, I mean, if my civil rights have been violated by the state, the idea that a law says I shall be compensated and it actually means I shall not be compensated except in rare circumstances just is, to me, that's like fundamentally unjust. And some of the cases I could just go on and on about some of the cases where the qualified immunity attached that are just, that are just mind blowing. Cops bang on the wrong house door at two in the morning, don't identify themselves as police. Young man playing video games answers the door with a gun in his hand and is shot dead within two seconds. Qualified immunity.
like what or police dog sicked on a defend uh, on a defend or a suspect who's kneeling and surrendering with his hands behind his head and the dog attacks him and sends him to the ER qualified immunity because the only other case where where liability was imposed for on a cop in that jurisdiction was when the police dog attacked him attacked a suspect lying down but when the suspect is sitting up that's not clearly established that it violates his right. Like that, you know, that kind of stuff. You could just do that all day long. And people are like, wait, what? I don't get that. And, you know, so there's there's just a lot to be said about that. And it, it's one of those obscure doctrines, now less obscure, that shapes the way we live in a way that a lot of people don't understand. And And if you care about free speech on campus, I've litigated free speech on campus for years and years and years and qualified immunity was a problem. You know, we could get in, injunctive relief, but because we couldn't recover financially, schools had this incentive to like, just keep their unconstitutional policies in place until we went and sued you and you and you and you and you. And, you know, over time it worked. I mean, speech codes are down way down from what they were, but you know, we couldn't say that the first amendment was clearly established. <laughs> It had to be some subset of First Amendment doctrine that was clearly established as it related to higher education or we couldn't recover. It's crazy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about that. Yeah, you're right, Camille. I fucked up. <laughs> we, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column.